Hi, and welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. On today's episode, episode 60, we are going to be discussing the Beatles' Revolver album, which was released 55 years ago, two weeks ago. Uh, the episode was supposed to come out last week, but I have had delay after delay and just been one of those stretches where you feel kind of stuck in neutral or like you're trying to plow through sludge to get anything done. Um, it's not like I'm not excited about this topic and I had the motivation. It just seemed like the focus wasn't there and um, every little distraction that could come up came up and eventually I just decided to, okay, it gets done when it gets done and let's do it right. And so I guess I'd like to take this uh, opportunity to encourage any of you who might be feeling the same way, sort of a low-grade frustration perpetually these days. Uh, be patient with yourself. It's uh, strange days have found us, to quote uh, two episodes ago, uh, The Doors. Anyhow, yeah, so be patient with yourself. And the, the, the trick is finding that balance and knowing when to give yourself some grace and then when it's time to give yourself a kick in the pants and today is that day for me and fitting with how the last few weeks have gone the house across the street from me has uh not decided to mess with me but uh today turns out to be the day that they are having their driveway redone so there are dump trucks slamming around and all sorts of noises that will no doubt pollute this episode. And for that, I'm sorry, but unfortunately my schedule and my personal schedule and the show's schedule don't allow me to kick the can any further down the road. And I don't want you all to have to wait any longer. So here we are and we'll just have to fight through it. And as always, before we really dive into it, I just want to thank you for stopping by. I know that the amount of alone time it takes to get through a podcast is precious and hard to come by these days, so I appreciate you entrusting me with yours. I think we'll have a good one today. I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. You can find the show on Instagram and TikTok at rocktalk.dr.cropper. And those are probably the two most active channels, but also on Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps. And on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. You can also email me rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com and feel free to reach out on any of those platforms if you have any feedback for me, questions topics you'd like me to cover, which you will have priority sequence for if you choose to subscribe to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the new Apple exclusive, unfortunately for those of you who don't have an Apple device, uh, premium edition of the show, which gives you access to a minimum of two bonus episodes per month, in addition to priority sequence for the topic requests, and 10% off all merchandise. Speaking of which, there are uh, t-shirts and hoodies available in both the whiteboard and chalkboard design for $40 Canadian, two for 70 for the shirts and $80 Canadian, uh, two for 150 for the hoodies. And I can mention a bit more about that at the end. And lastly, uh, if you feel so inclined, 
leaving a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use is very helpful to me. It uh, plays into their indexing and all of that and will help the show to be seen by more eyeballs and then hopefully heard by more ears. So without further ado, let's get into Revolver. Alright, what you heard just there is my brother Spencer Cropper's take on Got to Get You Into My Life, the penultimate track of Revolver, and I'll be interviewing Spence later in the episode. You've heard from him many times before, and I'm sure you'll appreciate hearing from him again on this one. And the drums you heard at the beginning was me doing Tomorrow Never Knows. I also did a bit of She Said, She Said, and a bit of Rain, which isn't on the album, but was part of the single that immediately preceded it. We'll talk about that in a second. So anyhow, all song clips were created ourselves. Right, so Revolver was the Beatles' seventh studio album. Following the UK timeline, the US releases were a bit uh, tampered with. This is the last one, actually, that was different between the two sides of the pond, starting with Sgt. Pepper. They insisted that... um, the track listing is the track listing across the globe but anyhow this is their seventh uk album which is the the timeline that i would recommend following and this is the album after rubber soul which came out in december of 65 and revolver was preceded by the paperback writer and rain single which came out in late may of 1966 uh, Revolver came out August 5th, 66, and that paperback writer Rain single uh, came out of the Revolver sessions, but those two tracks didn't end up making it onto the album, which would have improved it from a um, some of its parts perspective because they're two awesome songs, but I and there would be space because Revolver is only 35 minutes long but I was trying to figure out where I would put them in if I were to include them and make it a 16 song album instead of 14. And, uh, I can't really think of where I would fit them in thematically. So, uh, probably the right decision to put them out as a single to, uh, drum up the anticipation for the album. And I do think they offer a good preview of the, what the album would sound like and are almost like a bridge between the rubber soul and prior era and the stark contrast that would be ushered in with revolver. They're sort of like that single is kind of like a trailer and then revolver is the feature film. So revolver comes out August 5th, 66 during what turned out to be their final concert tour which concluded on August 29th at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Now, as far as that being their final concert tour, they were already growing tired of live performance. Uh, You know, their career kind of took place just a few years too early for live music really taking off. The technology was still inferior. Uh, Very short concerts were still standard. You know, most of their shows were... 30 minutes long 
Whereas if you fast forward to 1969 and beyond, starting with the Rolling Stones 69 tour, I would say uh, playing hockey basketball arenas, if not football stadiums, became pretty standard. Obviously, the Beatles had played Shea Stadium and a few others in 65 and 66, but that was playing through the venue's PA system. So you picture them trying to be heard over the screaming crowd, which was a big, another big issue for them with Beatlemania. And they're playing through the speakers that are used during a baseball game to say, you know, next up the third baseman. So obviously uh, not strong enough to put on a powerful rock concert I mean, they did their part performance-wise, but the technology just wasn't there. Whereas a few years later, you have uh, bands bringing around their own sound system so that it sounds consistent and sounds good and is plenty loud. Anyhow, so they're frustrated with live performance, and accordingly, they really amped up the exploration of the studio in in the revolver sessions without fear of being unable to replicate the stuff live. And indeed they didn't play any of it on that summer of 66 tour. And then another factor contributing to their retirement from the stage was the constant barrage from the press and protests, including by the Ku Klux Klan during that tour in response to John Lennon's infamous bigger than Jesus remarks in March of 66. And so that also sort of contributed and confirmed their decision to retire from live performance, which of course opened the door for the even further studio exploration of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and beyond. But anyhow, let's take that, rewind it back, as Ludacris would say, and talk about the Revolver Sessions. Recording ran from April 6th to June 21st of 1966 at EMI's Abbey Road Studios in London, and Brian Epstein had intended for 1966 to have the Beatles make a film and accompanying album in the first part of the year, then a summer tour, and then a second album, just as they had done in 64 and 65. But the band vetoed the proposed film project, resulting in what was the longest break of their career up to that point in early 1966. They were able to get a few months off, which benefited the album greatly as far as I'm concerned. And they were actually dissatisfied with the studios at Abbey Road and wanted to try somewhere more modern. They really liked the sound that came out of Stack's studio in Memphis and had arranged to go there, but word got out and it was bombarded by locals, so they canceled. And they also considered Atlantic Studios in New York and Motown's Hitsville, USA in Detroit, but ultimately decided to stick it out at Abbey Road. They also had a new engineer this time around, then 19-year-old Jeff Emmerich, who was more open-minded than the engineers they had worked with previously and was willing to help them achieve whatever they wanted to go for, no matter how weird. He later recalled that the band encouraged the studio staff to 
buck the conventional wisdom of recording and instructed them that every instrument should sound unlike itself. So having the break helped, having a new engineer who was more willing and eager to help them achieve whatever uh, strange and new ideas they wanted to try out helped. But also, according to numerous sources, the camaraderie within the band was at its zenith during the Revolver era. It's interesting to speculate why that might be the case. Perhaps they were just refreshed from the couple of months off. Whatever the cause, I think it shows in the music that they ended up putting down. And I think another factor in the increased studio exploration is that they wrote a lot of the songs in the studio. It's not like they wrote them all beforehand, had demo tapes and had the arrangements all settled and the songs rehearsed and then just went in to lay down the master takes. Uh, that's one, another thing that Jeff Emmerich recalled is that there weren't any demos or anything. They wrote a lot of the songs in real time in the studio, which is an expensive way to do it if you're an up and coming band. But when you have the stature that they had at this point, you can do whatever you want. And when you do that, I think it makes the studio the fifth member of the band or the fifth songwriter at the table. And I think that definitely played a part in the massive increase in, um, studio trickery, I guess you could say, compared to their catalog before Revolver. And of course, personal opinions on the merits or lack thereof of uh, the exploration of certain illicit substances, you cannot overstate the influence that LSD had on Revolver and the couple of albums after it. They had been introduced to it by Lennon's dentist of all people about a year before the revolver sessions uh, at some point in 65 and he and George Harrison had partaken of it fairly liberally since then Ringo had tried it I believe Paul had not at this point he did eventually but that played a huge part in their interest in exploring a uh, novel and never done before uh, sounds and techniques to try to replicate the sorts of things they had seen and experienced on those journeys. And uh, it's definitely reflected in the album that ended up being Revolver. And I saw George Harrison say at one point that he viewed Rubber Soul and Revolver as sort of volume one and volume two, wherein they're kind of two sides of the same coin, Rubber Soul being the cannabis side of the coin and then revolver being the acid side. And it's an interesting way to look at it. You listen to the two albums back to back and, uh, see the difference in vibe. Anyhow, to wrap up the introduction portion of the episode, revolver entered the charts at number one in the UK and stayed there for seven weeks and had a 34 week run in the top 40. And it hit number one in America on September 10th, unseating the recently released compilation of theirs yesterday and today, which was released just two months or so before Revolver, and contained three of the songs that 
uh, were on Revolver on the UK version, which I would consider the actual version, and then the uh, US one was just missing them. Anyhow, so the bastardized version in America hit number one on September 10th, uh, knocking off their compilation that had spent five weeks at number one just before that. And Revolver stayed at the top in the States for six weeks and remained on the chart until mid-February of 1968, a year and a half during perhaps the most prolific period for music in general, like ever. So very impressive. And it was nominated at the 1967 Grammy Awards for Album of the Year. It won Best Cover for Graphic Arts. And as far as the Album of the Year award, it lost to Frank Sinatra's A Man and His Music, which is pretty ridiculous if you ask me. And funny since Andrew Bird can sing a song on Revolver is supposedly Lennon taking a shot at Sinatra after uh, reading what he thought was an excessively egotistical uh, interview or something. A bit of the pot calling the kettle black, but I would put Lennon high above Sinatra. And interestingly, neither Pet Sounds nor Blonde on Blonde, which we've talked about recently that also came out in 66, uh, neither of those two were nominated, which is kind of crazy. The Beatles were vindicated the following year, winning the 1968 Album of the Year Award for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But again, the omissions in the nominations are glaring that year as well. Uh, most years, I would say. You look at the 72 awards, which would be for stuff released in 71. Carol King's Tapestry won, and Led Zeppelin IV, Sticky Fingers, Who's Next, and What's Going On were not even nominated, so that's why you shouldn't put too much stock in awards shows. Anyhow, there's my little soapbox moment of the day. <laughs> Hopefully, for your sake, it's the only one, but you never know. And Revolver has been certified five times platinum by the RIAA, so that's for certified units sold in the United States, and five times platinum means over five million. So at this point in the proceedings, we will move on to the track-by-track -track observations, and then I'll do the uh, the general thoughts about the album, then we'll have the interview with Spencer, and then I'll talk about where I think Revolver ranks in the Beatles catalog and what I would score it and where it ranks in uh, music's catalog in the grand scheme of uh, popular music. All right, and for each track I will read the lyrics as is my practice when uh, we're talking about an individual album. Hopefully it doesn't take too long. So the album kicks off with Tax Man. The lyrics are as follows. It starts with an intro by Paul that's out of time, and then George starts the one that's more in time, but underneath it. 
one, two, three, four, one, two, and then one, two, three, four in the background. Anyhow, let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me, because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Should 5% appear too small, be thankful I don't take it all, because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. Tax man. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. That's after the solo now. Don't ask me what I want it for. Ha ha, Mr. Wilson. If you don't want to pay some more. Uh, uh, Mr. Heath. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Now my advice for those who die. Declare the pennies on your eyes. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. And you're working for no one but me. So oddly enough, this was only the sixth song by George to be on a Beatles album, and they chose it as an opener, so that's pretty cool. I definitely think it's deserving of that honor. And the lyrics were written in response to the extremely high percentage of tax that was being charged on the very high income earners in England at that time under Harold Wilson's uh, Labor Party government. That's the uh, uh, Mr. Wilson uh, part. And then Mr. Heath refers to Edward Heath, who was the leader of the opposition and he actually became prime minister himself from 70 to 74, and then was knocked off by Wilson, who took back over for two more years. Anyhow, during this period of time, the percentage of tax on the, the ultra-rich was astronomically high. At one point, I believe it was 95%. That's why in the 70s you had bands like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin going into tax exile and moving their permanent residence to another country for a few years to avoid it. Anyhow, back to Taxman. The trippiness starts right off the bat with the count-in being out of time with the actual song. It's a very confident way to start an album with the opening line being, let me tell you how it will be. And the instrumentation has the confidence to match, owing mainly to Paul's bass line and the biting guitars, which is a characteristic of the entire album. Paul's bass part during the If You Drive a Car section is amazing when it goes. It's about as fast and aggressive as you should ever realistically go, I think, yet so melodic at the same time. And Paul actually plays the guitar solo, which has to be one of the greatest of all time for solos of such a short duration. It's in the like 10 to 15 second range. Uh, it's pretty well hard rock a few years early, but certainly has a psychedelic flair as well. And a clever choice to play it a second time. Uh, it plays again over the outro. 
and it was obviously an overdub since he's playing the bass on the main track, so they just pasted the solo twice. And the guitar leads in the right channel. Yes, I have the stereo mix because I have the 2009 remaster. I know it was originally released in mono, but um, the way that it's split into stereo now, the guitar leads that are in the right channel during the, uh, or starting at the uh, uh, Mr. Wilson part are so aggressive and snarly. And there's like a little tail how it rings out a little bit extra than you would expect it to, uh, which is wonderfully reflective of the psychedelic experience with everything sort of being turned to 11, if you will. And I would say that Taxman is one of their best album openers and perfect tone setter for what is contained in the rest of Revolver. And as if the sonic differences weren't enough to differentiate it from their catalog prior to this point, opening with a George lead vocal really uh, gives you the feeling or would have back then as you're you know, listening to the catalog as it comes out, would have given you the feeling that, whoa, this is something different. Okay, so track two is Eleanor Rigby. Its lyrics are as follows. Ah, look at all the lonely people. Ah, look at all the lonely people. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Ah, look at all the lonely people. Ah, look at all the lonely people. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? So this one is played with just the vocals and a string octet. And the octet's playing is very staccato the whole way through, which blends perfectly with the general aggression and bite of the rest of the album. And the uh, look at all the lonely people harmonies seem to explode out of the speakers. And then as far as the lyrics are concerned, the uh, look at all the lonely people refrain was suggested by George and John later recounted that George and Paul were working on that. It's obviously a Paul lead vocal 
and John was on his way out to take a bathroom break and heard them say that line and turned around and was like, that's it. Then in the first verse, we have the description of Eleanor Rigby, who is obviously lonely because she's cleaning up the rice after the wedding. So she obviously wasn't the one who got married. And then we're told she lives in a dream. So it could have even been an imaginary wedding. And then the waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for line? Um, putting on your face is a, a euphemism for putting your makeup on. So could mean that even though she's lonely and spends most of her time daydreaming, she still gets dressed up nice and puts her makeup on just in case somebody happens to show up at her door and take her out of her loneliness. And then verse two with Father Mackenzie uh, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. So, you know, church attendance is dwindling, at least in this imaginary world. And then darning his socks, uh, darning a sock is like fixing, patching a, a hole in it. And uh, Anglican priests, Beatles obviously being from England, are allowed to get married, and a lot of them are. And back at this time, for sure, uh, repairing sock repair would have been a a job that would typically fall on the wife's shoulders. So the fact that he's doing it implies his loneliness as well. And, you know, spending his night fixing his own socks when, and then when there's nobody there, what does he care? So similar to Eleanor putting her makeup on, even though she lives alone, father Mackenzie's fixing up his socks, but what difference does it make when nobody's going to see them? And then in verse three, we have Eleanor Rigby being buried uh, along with her name, as in without descendants. So that branch of her family tree stops with her. And then Father Mackenzie uh, officiates the service that no one attends and says no one was saved. So, you know, he prepared that sermon. And as it said earlier, that no one will hear. So he wasn't able to get anybody saved at Eleanor Rigby's funeral. And it's sort of uh, like uh, A Simple Twist of Fate by Bob Dylan talking about how it can be right person, wrong timing, sort of a cruel uh, twist of fate, if you will, with the timing here that had Father Mackenzie and Eleanor Rigby met, they could have been friends or even uh, hit it off romantically or who knows, but they don't quote unquote meet until he's officiating her funeral and they've been living these parallel really lonely lives so some really brilliant and efficient uh, lyrics there as far as using an economy of words to convey quite a lot of meaning and i think that eleanor rigby was really a quantum leap in songwriting for pop music in general at that point and i've seen it written that Whereas John came into his own as a songwriter on Rubber Soul with Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown, and In My Life especially, I would say, uh, Paul came into his own as a songwriter on Revolver with Eleanor Rigby and for no one in particular, in my opinion. 
Okay, track three is I'm Only Sleeping. Its lyrics are as follows. When I wake up early in the morning, lift my head, I'm still yawning. When I'm in the middle of a dream, stay in bed, float upstream. Please don't wake me, no, don't shake me. Leave me where I am, I'm only sleeping. Everybody seems to think I'm lazy. I don't mind, I think they're crazy. Running everywhere at such a speed, till they find there's no need. Please don't spoil my day, I'm miles away, and after all, I'm only sleeping. Keeping an eye on the world going by my window, taking my time, lying there and staring at the ceiling, waiting for a sleepy feeling. And then you've got a backwards guitar solo. Please don't spoil my day, I'm miles away, and after all, I'm only sleeping. And then there's a yawn. Keeping an eye on the world going by my window, taking my time. When I wake up early in the morning, lift my head, I'm still yawning. When I'm in the middle of a dream, stay in bed, float upstream. Please don't wake me, no, don't shake me. Leave me where I am, I'm only sleeping. So this one is a funny one. Lennon had been accused of being lazy and it's sort of him flipping the tables on the people, criticizing him for being lazy and saying, no, no, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that you're running yourself ragged in the rat race for no reason instead of enjoying life as you go. Now, of course, easy for him to say as a millionaire musician, but anyhow, I mean, they did work very hard certainly to get to this point and continue to um, but it's not the same as punching the clock uh, there's different stress no matter what your job is anyhow around this time he is quoted as saying I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking but sex is the only physical thing I can be bothered with anymore so there probably was some truth to the laziness accusation, but a funny retort on his part. Nonetheless, the effect on his vocal is fantastic. It has a drowsiness to it, sure, but also has kind of a trippy energy to it. And the paradox is really interesting and certainly in keeping with the psychedelic genre. And then the line lying there staring at the ceiling waiting for a sleepy feeling is very relatable to those who have uh, explored LSD. I love the stop-start action and what the bass does in the gaps, especially how it staggers to a halt slower than the previous times at the end. The yawns are an excellent touch, subtle enough to avoid being cheesy, but they're clever. And then you have the backmasked guitars uh, highlighted by Harrison's backmasked solo, which is brilliant in both concept and execution. Um, he actually planned it out uh, 
thinking about how it would sound once the tape was reversed. And his guitar has kind of a sitar-like timbre throughout because of the backmasking, uh, which eases us into the full-blown sitar and tabla arrangement of Love You Too. So track four is, you guessed it, Love You Too. Its lyrics are as follows. Each day just goes so fast. I turn around, it's past. You don't get time to hang a sign on me. Love me while you can, before I'm a dead old man. A lifetime is so short, a new one can't be bought. But what you've got means such a lot to me. Make love all day long make love singing songs and then it repeats that after an interlude there's people standing round who will screw you in the ground they'll fill you in with all their sins you'll see i'll make love to you if you want me to So actually kind of similar to I'm Only Sleeping, uh, with the general message being, why don't you all slow down and have some sex instead? I've always loved the sitar solo. The backmasked guitar leads are a perfect complement as well. And the tablas are very enchanting, drawing us ever deeper into the experience. I love the accelerando on the outro and the fade out occurring just as the sitar part is really heating up during that accelerando uh, just adds to the tremendous sense of propulsive motion sustained throughout the album. And Love You Too is an interesting one because it doesn't feature John or Paul. It's a George lead vocal and Ringo only provides tambourine, uh, which leads me to something I forgot I should have done at the beginning is read you the personnel for the album so obviously with the beatles you have john lennon lead harmony and backing vocals rhythm and acoustic guitars hammond organ mellotron harmonium tape loops sound effects tambourine hand claps and finger snaps paul mccartney lead harmony and backing vocals bass rhythm and lead guitars piano clavichord tape loops sound effects hand claps and finger snaps George Harrison, lead harmony and backing vocals, lead acoustic rhythm and bass guitars, sitar, tambura, tape loops, sound effects, maracas, tambourine, hand claps, and finger snaps, and Ringo Starr, drums, tambourine, maracas, cowbell, shaker, hand claps, finger snaps, tape loops, and lead and backing vocals on Yellow Submarine. And then additional musicians, Anil Bagwat, Tabla on Love You Too, Alan Civil, French Horn on For, For No One, uh, George Martin, who's the producer and mixing engineer, 
uh, does piano on Good Day Sunshine and Tomorrow Never Knows and Hammond Organ on Got to Get You Into My Life and then the tape loop of the marching band on Yellow Submarine. Jeff Emmerich, the recording and mixing engineer, does tape loop of the marching band on Yellow Submarine. Mal Evans does bass drum and backing vocals on Yellow Submarine. Neil Aspinall does backing vocals on Yellow Submarine. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones does sound effects, ocarina, and background vocals on Yellow Submarine. Patty Boyd does background vocals on Yellow Submarine, as does Marianne Faithful. Alf Bicknell does sound effects and backing vocals on Yellow Submarine. And then uh, Tony Gilbert, Sidney Sachs, John Sharp, and Jurgen Hess, violins. Stephen Shingles, John Underwood, violas. Derek Simpson, Norman Jones, cellos. And for That's all for the string art octet on Eleanor Rigby, which was orchestrated and conducted by George Martin and Paul. And then... Eddie Thornton, Ian Hamer, Les Condon, trumpet, Peter Coe, Alan Branscombe, tenor sax. That's for the horn section on Got to Get You Into My Life, which was also arranged and conducted by George Martin with Paul's help. So sorry about that. Should have done that at the beginning or maybe with Yellow Submarine since most of the credits seem to be for that, but uh, the tablas on Love You Too made me think of it, so there you have it. Next we have Here, There, and Everywhere. Its lyrics are as follows. To lead a better life, I need my love to be here. Here, making each day of the year, changing my life with the wave of her hand. Nobody can deny that there's something there. There, running my hands through her hair, both of us thinking how good it can be. Someone is speaking, but she doesn't know he's there. I want her everywhere, and if she's beside me, I know I need never care. But to love her is to need her everywhere. Knowing that love is to share. Each one believing that love never dies. Watching her eyes and hoping I'm always there. I want her everywhere. And if she's beside me, I know I need never care. But to love her is to need her everywhere. Knowing that love is to share each one believing that love never dies, watching her eyes and hoping I'm always there. I will be there and everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. So, Fairly straightforward love song as far as the lyrics are concerned. Uh, very sweet sentiment. 
Even it has the psychedelic imagery hidden in there, though. I will be there and everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. Well, how exactly can one be here, there, and everywhere? Uh, God's the only one who's omnipresent. Anyhow, uh, John and George's harmonies are quite lush and have a bit of a Beach Boys flavor, actually. I sort of think of this as the Beatles version of Surfer Girl by the Beach Boys. I love Ringo's soft but sure-handed fills throughout, and uh, this one was actually written by Paul sitting out by John's swimming pool while he was waiting for him to wake up for one of their songwriting sessions, so there's definitely some truth to the criticism leveled against John uh, that he was responding to with I'm Only Sleeping, and it almost sounds like he's quietly writing it, trying not to be a rude guest and wake him up. And as far as how Paul achieved that vocal effect on the final version, he said that he was trying to sing it like Mary Ann Faithful, so he did it in a very soft voice, almost falsetto, and double-tracked it. And uh, I think it's one of their prettiest songs, and apparently it's Paul's favorite of his own songs, so how's that for a ringing endorsement? And both John and George Martin also identified it as one of their favorites of Paul's. Track six is Yellow Submarine. Its lyrics are as follows. In the town where I was born lived a man who sailed to sea, and he told us of his life in the land of submarines. So we sailed unto the sun till we found the sea of green, and we lived beneath the waves in our yellow submarine. We all live in a yellow submarine, Yellow submarine, yellow submarine, we all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine, and our friends are all aboard, many more of them live next door, and the band begins to play, then the chorus again, then you have a bridge with John and Paul's voices being heavily distorted with uh, effects to make it sound like they're over the intercom of the submarine. Full steam ahead, Mr. Boatswain. Full steam ahead. Full steam ahead it is, Sergeant. Cut the cable. Drop the cable. Aye, aye, sir. Aye, aye. Captain, captain. Then verse four. As we live a life of ease, every one of us has all we need. Sky of blue and sea of green in our yellow submarine. Then you have the chorus one last time, a little bit extended. somehow a fairly abrupt, as they all are on the album, transition from a gorgeous ballad-like 
here, there, and everywhere into a whimsical psychedelic sea shanty like Yellow Submarine uh, feels perfect. The bass drum is gloriously erratic at the start, and again at the start of the second verse. The acoustic guitar in the left channel that's really driving the train, or submarine should I say, is really cool and kind of reminds me of Keith Richards. Perhaps the presence of Brian Jones and a few ladies from the Rolling Stones circle uh, contributed. The submarine intercom sounds that uh, Lennon and Paul mimic during that bridge is really joyous and brilliant the way that they achieved it with the technology that was at their disposal 55 years ago. Ringo's lead vocal is really good, and Paul's call and response with him and subsequent yell uh, coming out of the the uh, the verse after the bridge is great. And it actually was written as an honest-to-goodness children's song uh, by Paul with Ringo in mind as the one who would sing it, uh, or at least started by Paul. Uh, but it certainly has the uh, the psychedelic flair to it sonically and uh, nods to it lyrically. And I just think it's great that they decided to do a, a sea shanty. I mean, just how many popular bands that aren't sort of uh, in the Celtic uh, side of things do that. Then side one wraps up with She Said, She Said, which is the drum part that you just heard and have been hearing throughout. The lyrics are as follows. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. And she's making me feel like I've never been born. I said, who put all those things in your head? Things that make me feel that I'm mad. And you're making me feel like I've never been born. She said, you don't understand what I've said. I said, no, 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 you're wrong. When I was a boy, everything was right. Everything was right. I said, even though you know what you know, I know that I'm ready to leave because you're making me feel like I've never been born. She said, you don't understand what I said. I said, no, 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 you're wrong. When I was a boy, everything was right. Everything was right. I said, even though you know what you know, I know that I'm ready to leave because you're making me feel like I've never been born. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. I know what it's like to be dead. So how's that for heaviness coming after the childlike whimsy of Yellow Submarine? 
Uh, I'm going to read you a John Lennon quote about it, uh, explaining it. She said, she said, that's mine. It's an interesting track. The guitars are great on it. That was written after an acid trip in LA during a break in the Beatles tour. Peter Fonda came in when we were on acid and he kept coming up to me and sitting next to me and whispering, I know what it's like to be dead. He was describing an acid trip he'd been on. We didn't want to hear about that. We were on an acid trip and the sun was shining and the girls were dancing and the whole thing was beautiful in 60s. And this guy, who I really didn't know, he hadn't made Easy Rider yet or anything, kept coming over wearing shades saying, I know what it's like to be dead. And we kept leaving him because he was so boring. And I used it for the song, but I changed it to she instead of he. So anyhow, you want to talk about things that can turn your trip south in a hurry. Some guy you don't know keeps sneaking up on you whispering, I know what it's like to be dead. Anyhow, uh, John is right that the guitars are great on She Said, She Said. Uh, they're great the whole album, but especially this song. I mean, I would even go so far as to call them orgasmic. Uh, very psychedelic and turned up to 11, turned on sounding. I think She Said, She Said is a legitimate candidate for Ringo's best song on the drums. Certainly one of the hardest to replicate, as I found out, trying to make that sample for you. I still don't think I have it down, by the way, but I wanted this episode to come out in August, not October. I think it's more difficult than the fairly similar Rain, which of course is from these sessions and was released with the Paperback Writers single. Um, actually, here, I'll play you a bit of that so you can see for comparison So that's rain, and then she said she said again, so you can hear the similarity. So anyhow, I think... Uh, she said she said is a legitimate candidate for Ringo's best song on the songs on the drums and one of the hardest to replicate the touch feel and timing is incredible and the fills play an integral part in the song occurring at the end of each line and each one is unique and full of ghost notes often uh, played in a way somewhat antithetical to the conventions of rock drumming which is one of Ringo's trademarks uh, born out of necessity, according to him, due to his being left-handed playing a right-handed kit. But, you know, whatever the causality, they sound awesome and are tough to mimic. And he navigates the transitions in and out of 5-4 so deftly that 
most probably wouldn't even notice the change in meter. The when I was a boy part is in 5-4. Three bars of 5-4 as a matter of fact. And then lest we forget Paul's bass part brilliantly weaving between the fireworks of Ringo and the guitars, ever bubbling just beneath the surface. And she said she said has one of my favorite John vocals and a difficult one, it seems to me. I was trying to sing along in the car and the breath support that it takes to go straight into the when I was a boy line and be strong on that high note on boy is tough because there aren't really enough gaps in there to take a breath. It's a pretty jam-packed song that moves at a quick pace. Uh, and then, yeah, the lyrics, a pretty startling opening statement. She said, I know what it's like to be dead. And I explained the backstory there, but I, there's uh, obvious connotations to the potential for ego death in the psychedelic experience as well. So it makes sense in the context of the rest of the album, even without knowing the backstory. And it's cool how they took that line and ran with it and morphed it into a song depicting an argument, uh, probably towards or at the end of a relationship where they just both keep spiraling further and further away from reality, hurling increasingly, uh, ludicrous accusations at each other. Then side two kicks off with Good Day Sunshine. Its lyrics are as follows. Good day sunshine, good day sunshine, good day sunshine. I need to laugh, and when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good, in a special way. I'm in love and it's a sunny day. Then the chorus again. We take a walk, the sun is shining down burns my feet as they touch the ground, then the chorus again, and then we lie beneath a shady tree, I love her and she's loving me, she feels good, she knows she's looking fine, I'm so proud to know that she is mine, and then re uh, repeats the chorus a few times. So a fairly straightforward, happy-go-lucky love song with a bit of psychedelic flair in that it sounds almost over the top or unnaturally happy and chipper and uh, the exaggerations of stuff like being so hot that burns his feet as they touch the ground, which can happen uh, naturally. But, you know, uh, the opening cymbal wash coming out of the stuttering snare fill is fascinating. It sounds as if it's already been going in the background and suddenly the noise gate opens partway through the sound wave, like opening the blinds on a sunny morning. 
and the hand claps are a nice touch. And there are actually two drum parts going, which I noticed with the help of the stereo mix. Um, in the outro, you have the, the steady pulse in the left channel that has the snare going on the quarter notes while all of the fills and crashes go off in the right channel. And uh, trust me, um, take my word for it as a drummer, uh, unless Ringo turned into an octopus for this song, uh, it's two drum parts. And George Martin's honky-tonk style piano is just what the doctor ordered. And this is another one that John singled out as one of his favorite Paul songs, so that's pretty cool. Next we have Andrew Bird Can Sing. Its lyrics are as follows. You tell me that you've got everything you want. Andrew Bird can sing, but you don't get me. You don't get me. You say you've seen seven wonders. Andrew Bird is green, but you can't see me. You can't see me. When your prized possessions start to weigh you down, look in my direction. I'll be round. I'll be round. And then you've got the instrumental break. When your bird is broken, will it bring you down? You may be awoken. I'll be round. I'll be round. You tell me that you've heard every sound there is, and your bird can swing, but you can't hear me. You can't hear me. So I mentioned earlier that I read a theory that it was that this song was a shot at Frank Sinatra after Lennon read an article about him in I think Time magazine around this time where he came off as sort of overly conceited and it could well also be that but the more I read it I think there's probably uh more proof of the more common theory that it's directed at Mick Jagger and the bird in question being Marianne Faithful, who Jagger was with at the time. Um, and your bird can sing because she was a singer and your bird is green because she came from uh, a wealthy family. And then, um, Andrew Bird can swing because she was reportedly bisexual. So, um, yeah, I think it makes a bit more sense given all that evidence that it's directed at Jagger and sort of a, hey man, I don't actually view you as an equal. Um, I'm still the big brother in this game. Um, so in that sense, uh, a really clever song, even though I'm a big Stones fan, uh, probably even more so than the Beatles as far as who's uh, top end of their catalog I like better personally. Uh, I know not something I should be saying on a Beatles episode, but hey. And in that sense, with it 
most likely being a a shot at Mick Jagger or a put down of him and Lennon uh, expressing his view that he uh, was sort of above his peers at the time or didn't have any peers and was kind of in a league of his own. Uh, in that sense, it makes Andrew Bird can sing sort of a precursor to Strawberry Fields Forever, which was from the Sgt. Pepper sessions, but ultimately came out as a single and on Magical Mystery Tour, uh, so written a few months after this, uh, with with its line, no one I think is in my tree, it must be high or low. Anyhow, um, I've heard many a guitarist rave about Andrew Bird can sing, and for good, good reason, I think the guitars are excellent on it, and the bass really goes on quite a journey as far as the melodic arc while the guitars are singing, if you will. Uh, it sounds like it's hiking in the hills, sort of a stepwise yet organic movement up and down the neck. Oddly enough, though, uh, years later, John described Anne Your Bird Can Sing as a horror and a throwaway, and it was amongst the Beatles songs that he hated the most, which is uh, funny because most of the ones that he despised were Paul songs like Yesterday, and I can imagine he probably wasn't big on The Long and Winding Road, uh, neither am I, but uh, yeah, this is one of his own that he apparently was not fond of in hindsight, but that's the funny thing. Sometimes stuff that the artist either hates or starts to resent for its popularity dwarfing the rest of their catalog uh, those are the songs that a lot of fans really love. So the moral of the story, I guess, is if you dig it, just listen to it. Who cares who else hates it, even if it's the one who wrote it? Next we have For No One, its lyrics are as follows, your day breaks, your mind aches, you find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you, she wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry, she no longer needs you, and in her eyes you see nothing, no sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one, a love that should have lasted years. You want her, you need her, and yet you don't believe her when she says her love is dead, you think she needs you. Then you've got the French horn solo by Alan Civil. And in her eyes you see nothing, no sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one, a love that should have lasted years. You stay home, she goes out. She says that long ago she knew someone, but now he's gone. She doesn't need him. Your day breaks. Your mind aches. There will be times when all the things she said will fill your head. You won't forget her. And in her eyes you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears. Cried for no one. A love that should have lasted years. 
this is one of those breakup songs that uh, is on the level. It feels like it's a divorce song, uh, especially with the seeming implication that maybe they still live together, even though they're technically broken up, which would usually only be the case in a divorce is pending kind of situation. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, in her eyes, you see nothing, uh, if they had broken up and just weren't seeing each other anymore, then he likely wouldn't be in contact with her looking in her eyes to see nothing. You see what I'm saying? Anyhow, I think, uh, verse three is especially great. You want her, you need her, and yet you don't believe her when she says her love is dead. You think she needs you. The classic uh, denial in your first stage of uh, grief and despair and confusion at something ending when you didn't expect it to. And uh, really just a heartbreaking song about a love fizzling out. All the more heartbreaking since the fizzle out was one-sided. And I would say that this is an incredibly underrated song outside the Beatles community. Uh, one of the prettiest melancholic songs ever, I think, both lyrically and instrumentally with the French horn solo. And uh, an example of that effect I've talked about where songs end up being underrated a bit because they're lost in the shuffle of an all-time great artist's catalog that just has so many songs on that level, whereas if this had been put out by some artist where it was far and away their best song, it might uh, receive a bit more attention than it does or get a bit more airplay because, you know, a station doesn't, unless it's the Beatles channel on Sirius XM, they're not just going to play Beatles 24-7 and there are other Beatles songs that, uh, you know, the, cata the catalog kind of cannibalizes in the fight for airtime. Uh, same thing with, um, you know, with say Led Zeppelin, you can look at a song like the ocean. Uh, I think I talked about this in the last episode, actually, um, a, a hard rock song that had it been released by some one hit wonder would probably get talked about and played as often as, uh, say a more than a feeling by Boston, for example. Uh, but because it's the 25th, for argument's sake, best Zeppelin song, it uh, doesn't get quite as much uh, play. And similarly, I think with For No One, because it's not the clear-cut best or top five Beatles song, gets a bit lost in the shuffle compared to what its quality deserves. And by the way, that effect can take place on the band's part as well. I remember in a discussion on the official Led Zeppelin forum uh, one time, talking about the ocean, which is probably why I thought of it. As an example, I was uh, wondering why it wasn't played live more often, and uh, the guy who's been to a lot of Zeppelin concerts on there said you know, it's possible that they just didn't realize what a great song they had on their hands because they had so many other greats in their repertoire that they had to squeeze into the set list and tying it back to the Beatles, uh, sort of a similar effect with Lennon 
thinking that Andrew Bird can sing was crap in hindsight. Uh, the old one man's junk is another man's treasure. Anyhow, back to For No One. Uh, the bass and piano have great individual parts and interplay between the two of them. And there are some very deep notes on the bass in the second last verse, I think, uh, towards the end. Um, almost fill bombs, the uh, colloquialism for really big, deep uh, notes by Phil Lesh of The Grateful Dead. Anyhow, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that For No One is Paul's best ballad. It's short, sweet, to the point. The lyrics are clever as opposed to cutesy or cheesy, which he can sometimes have a propensity towards, which uh, is usually the uh, the reason behind one of his songs having been one of John's least favorites, whenever that's the case. Um, I think this is a lot better than Michelle, for example, uh, which is a nice song, but I've always found the uh, the part where he sings in French a little, uh, you know, too cute or cheesy, as I was saying. Uh, anyhow, I think in the case of For No One, it uh, being in the second person as opposed to the first person maybe helps in uh, keeping it a bit more clever and uh, understated and elegant. Next we have Dr. Robert. Its lyrics are as follows. Ring my friend, I said you'd call Dr. Robert. Day or night, he'll be there any time at all, Dr. Robert. Dr. Robert, you're a new and better man. He helps you to understand. He does everything he can, Dr. Robert. If you're down, he'll pick you up, Dr. Robert. Take a drink from his special cup, Dr. Robert. Dr. Robert. He's a man you must believe, helping anyone in need. No one can succeed like Dr. Robert. Well, 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 you're feeling fine. Well, 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 he'll make you, Dr. Robert. My friend works for the National Health, Dr. Robert. You'll pay money just to see yourself with Dr. Robert. Dr. Robert, you're a new and better man. He helps you to understand. He does everything he can, Dr. Robert. Well, 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 you're feeling fine. Well, 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 he'll make you, Dr. Robert. Ring, my friend, I said you'd call Dr. Robert. Ring, my friend, I said you'd call Dr. Robert. Dr. Robert. So an interesting case here, clearly about someone who's supplying illicit goodies. Uh, Paul said that it's about a doctor in New York who had a reputation for prescribing uh, 
stuff that was maybe a bit nefarious or wouldn't always be easy to come by to celebrities. Uh, but John later said that it was actually a bit autobiographical because he was the one who would uh, carry the the stuff on tour and uh, supply the other guys. So, you know, probably a bit of both. Uh, you can easily interpret it as being both. Um, I like the the line in the second chorus no one can succeed like Dr. Robert, perhaps a bit of John bragging that he's the one who's clever enough to be able to smuggle the stuff around. And then contrasted by uh, the start of verse three, my friend works for the national health, Dr. Robert, as in uh, someone threatening to be a narc and rat him out. In a way, Dr. Robert sounds the most similar to their previous output, I suppose, uh, particularly the bass, but the well, 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 you're feeling fine sections are a dead giveaway of it hailing from the revolver era. It's certainly not similar to the old stuff subject matter wise. And the guitar interplay is really cool throughout. It actually sounds a bit like the Rolling Stones weaving as Keith Richards calls it. And I love how Paul's backing vocals grow more prominent as the song goes along. Track 12 is I Want to Tell You. Its lyrics are as follows. I want to tell you my head is filled with things to say. When you're here, all those words, they seem to slip away. When I get near you, the games begin to drag me down. It's all right. I'll make you maybe next time around. But if I seem to act unkind, it's only me, it's not my mind that is confusing things. I want to tell you, I feel hung up, but I don't know why. I don't mind. I could wait forever. I've got time. Sometimes I wish I knew you well. Then I could speak my mind and tell you. Maybe you'd understand. I want to tell you, I feel hung up, but I don't know why. I don't mind. I could wait forever. I've got time. I've got time. I've got time. I've always really liked this one and found it pretty relatable as someone who used to be fairly shy and not so much anymore, but it can still uh, rear its ugly head when you're around an attractive woman. I especially like the the bridge, if I seem to act unkind, it's only me, it's not my mind that is confusing things, as in, you know, my mind's made up, I'm into you, and don't misinterpret. I'm not trying to be rude or cold. It's just me and my social awkwardness or whatever, uh, that's causing the confusion. Um, 
and I like the, I can wait forever. I've got time. Um, yeah. Patience is a virtue. And, uh, if I may say so myself, uh, I'm usually pretty decent at it. So I've always liked that line. Uh, the harmonies are really great on this one. More of a drone style bass line in contrast to the bubbly melodic lines of most of the rest of the album. It's still a bubbly drone though, if that makes sense. Uh, anyhow, it works great. Nice addition of hand claps. There is an Indian flair to the harmonies on the I've Got Time over the outro. And uh, the contrast between the patience of the lyrics and the restlessness implied by the instruments is really cool and sort of gives that feeling of growing or bursting at the seams that psychonauts know so well. And there's certainly some psychedelic double entendre going on in the lyrics um, of having way more things going on in your head than you could possibly articulate and the uh yeah it's okay i'll i'll say it later patience of i could wait forever i've got time uh, yeah The penultimate track is Got to Get You Into My Life. Its lyrics are as follows. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, then I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold you. And had you gone, you knew in time, we'd meet again, for I had told you. Ooh, you were meant to be near me. Ooh, and I want you to hear me. Say we'll be together every day. Got to get you into my life. What can I do? What can I be? When I'm with you, I want to stay there. If I'm true, I'll never leave. And if I do, I know the way there. Ooh, then I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? Got to get you into my life. Then there's an instrumental break with the horns, and then I've got to get you into my life. I was alone, I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. And suddenly I see you. Did I tell you I need you? every single day of my life. So on the surface, another sweet Paul love song, but it's actually an ode to pot, not a woman, uh, but it can certainly be adopted as such if you want to, uh, hear it as just a normal love song. Uh, anyway, instrumentally, it has a real soul Motown feel to it, uh, but certainly with a psychedelic flair, 
I love how the horns and the verses grow in these really inevitable sounding swells, just repeating over and over, giving sort of a pulsating sensation. Uh, Ringo's signature fill in it that's repeated uh, basically each time leading into the refrain, the just between the snare and the rack tom, the da 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 do 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 is so simple yet perfect. And uh, it has some of Paul's best, more aggressive rock singing without overdoing it at all. Uh, definitely at the peak of his powers as a vocalist. Uh, it doesn't sound strained as, at all, but he really goes for it. And I love how you can hear the lead guitar fire a faint little warning run before the big break that leads into the outro. And finally, the album draws to a close with Tomorrow Never Knows. Its lyrics are as follows. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. Lay down all thoughts, surrender to the void. It is shining. It is shining. That you may see the meaning of within. It is being. It is being. Then you've got the taxman solo played backwards that love is all and love is everyone it is knowing it is knowing that ignorance and hate may mourn the dead it is believing it is believing but listen to the color of your dreams it is not living it is not living or play the game existence to the end of the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, of the beginning, of the beginning, of the beginning, of the beginning. So clearly trippy all the way around. I don't need to get too far into analyzing it. Uh, if you know, you know. It's actually, it was, uh, it originated in Lennon, uh, on one of his acid trips, listening back to his own spoken word recording of passages of Timothy Leary's psychedelic experience. Uh, so, you know, trippy upon trippy and, uh, initially had the title of the void, but Lennon, uh, uh, decided to change it he thought it sounded too pretentious uh, especially as the album's closer and uh, Tomorrow Never Knows was one of uh, Ringo's malapropisms uh, he had lots of those uh, sort of like Yogi Berra with uh, the past ain't what it used to be stuff like that um, and it's actually the first pop song to have reversed sounds because it's the first song that they recorded at the revolver sessions it has all sorts of uh, other tricks on it too most of the tricks that were used on the album are used on tomorrow never knows um, for lennon's vocal sound which he wanted to uh, sound like he was the dalai lama 
shouting at the top of the Himalayas. Uh, they achieved that by using automatic double tracking, where uh, a, a second tape is recorded with delay in real time while you're singing the initial take. And uh, that gives a cool uh, sort of echo. And then for some of it, he sang while his vocal mic was being run through a rotating Leslie speaker cabinet, which uh, gives a cool effect. You can hear that in the verse after the backwards guitar solo. Um, off the top of my head, an example of a Leslie being used. Uh, I think it was initially designed for organ, I believe, but Bob Weir uh, runs his guitar through one on high time off of working man's dead but that's uh almost four years after this this is also the song that made use extensive use of tape loops each of the band members went home and made a a tape of any random sound they felt like making uh paul's was a laughing sound which is uh sped up to make the seagull noises that you hear and uh some of them were pretty long and they had to run them like out of the the studio room they were in and down and around the hall and all sorts of stuff um it's really cool the ingenuity that artists were forced into back then because of the technological limitations and in a lot of ways i think it ended up sounding better than uh not to make myself sound too much like too much of a uh a vicarious dinosaur but i think a lot of times it ended up sounding better than what people achieve now uh through the click of a button and why might that be well for one you still had the potential for happy accidents more so than you do now uh, and a lot of times they led to really cool stuff that ended up on the master take and you've got the indian influence with uh heavily tampered with uh sitar and tampira sounds uh, yeah it all combines for t tomorrow never knows being the perfect representation of a quote-unquote bad trip there are songs uh that really encapsulate the positive side of the psychedelic experience, uh, China Cat Sunflower by the Grateful Dead, for example, but I think Tomorrow Never Knows might be the best example of the negative side, or at least the most concise that still sounds remotely like a song. Uh, Revolution 9 off of the White Album could potentially, uh, you know, depict even further mental chaos, but it's more of a, a sound collage than a song. Tomorrow Never Knows is still just an excellent song. Uh, as far as the, uh, the bad trippiness uh, sounds appear and disappear out of nowhere, you've got the seagull noises from uh, Paul's laugh being sped up. You have a similar effect to the swells of horns on Got to Get You Into My Life, but uh, it's not with horns this time. It sounds like an organ to me uh anyhow and then of course you've got the taxman solo played in reverse what a stroke of genius to put the solo from the opening song backwards on the closing song and then 
Ringo's droning drum part, which you've heard throughout this episode, minus the uh, tambourine, because it's too complicated to uh, do multiple tracks and sync them up with the uh, amount of time I had this week and the amount of experience I have doing that sort of thing. Anyhow, um, that drum part is really enchanting and adds to the menace of the song. And a great example of Ringo's creativity coming up with a somewhat unorthodox drum part as opposed to just playing a standard 4-4 groove. The automatic double tracking and the Leslie speaker did a great job of capturing Lennon's desired vocal effect. The bass is really clever, the way that it finds the gaps and sweet spots amidst the melee, and the piano tag during the fade-out played by George Martin uh, sounds like being dragged off into the void, the song's initial title, uh, stuck in the madhouse forever. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold you. For had you gone, you knew in time we'd meet again for I had told. Okay, so general observations about Revolver. First of all, Klaus Vormann's cover art, the uh, part line drawing, part collage, was certainly deserving of the Grammy that it won and paints an excellent picture of the album contained therein and the fact that, well, first of all, pretty well all four of their eyes are in various states of... uh, being altered and the way that all the the heads in the collage are sort of like coming out of their brains uh is uh, some really interesting psychedelic imagery and the fact that it's black and white i think is reflective of the aggression and the harshness of the sound and a lot of the subject matter on the album and it's a big break from their previous album covers, which, apart from A Hard Day's Night, had all been just straight pictures of them uh, standing together or doing something together. And A Hard Day's Night has their faces just uh, with the uh, all the squares. But anyhow, the uh, the Revolver cover is quite different from anything before in their catalog, which uh, was a good clue to listeners back then that it was going to sound a lot different too. The sonic palette is very sharp and aggressive. The guitars are very harsh and biting, kind of similar to Jimmy Page's 1973 tone. Paul's bass has a bit more of a trebly tone with more attack than other albums of theirs. Ringo's bass drum being recorded better than it had been previously contributes to a more thumping bottom end, which also allows Paul's bass to be a bit more trebly. The vocals are very bright and popping throughout. Uh, It all really sounds like it's exploding out of the speakers at you. Uh, 
Uh, and it's certainly an album that feels like it's in attack mode the whole time. Uh, it's really an assault on all of your senses, even when it uh, calms down a bit for a ballad like Here, There, and Everywhere. There's still a lot of ear candy to be had, uh, much more ear candy across the entire album than previous albums of theirs. Ear candy meaning all of the other sounds uh, beyond just the standard guitar, drums, bass, or you know, a song that has a piano playing an integral part or something, all the other stuff. Nicholas Schaffner likened the turning point that the Beatles experienced in 1966 to the moment in The Wizard of Oz when it transforms from black and white to color. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that with the uh, their career up to this point being the part where they're still in Kansas and then from Revolver to the end, uh, you're in Oz. It also marked a shift in their fan base away from the very young, predominantly female fans of the Beatlemania era toward a slightly older, more male-dominated audience for the remainder of their career. Fans who were more interested in focusing on the intricacies of the music, which were now quite abundant, as opposed to fans who mostly craved love songs and wanted to scream and actually look at them, uh, which has more to do with the age part than the gender. I don't mean for that to sound sexist. It's There are plenty of uh, female fans who are more focused on actually paying attention to the intricacies of the music. It just so happens that there was a bit of a gender shift in their fan base at the same time as the the shift towards more of a calm focusing on the music. And it probably is more a case of coming closer to 50-50. Maybe it tipped a little bit to a more male majority audience, but uh, I think it's more so going from a boy band that guys might be like, oh, I don't know if I should admit that I like them because that's like the music that the screaming girls listen to. You know, I'm a tough guy. I listen to the Rolling Stones to like, oh, okay, it's, I'm not going to lose my man card for diving into uh, being a hardcore Beatles fan now. And Paul actually acknowledged around the time that the album came out that they would lose some fans with it, but he was confident that they would gain some too, and it would all even out or be a net gain even. I mentioned in the introduction that the camaraderie within the group was at its apex during this period, and it shows in the music. Even though it has a certain harshness to it, you never get the sense that it's directed at nor because of each other. Uh, it's more at the world at large or perhaps the listener, but it doesn't sound like they're mad at each other. Uh, contrast that with the the White Album sessions two years later when they wanted to kill each other half the time. And I've seen that album aptly described as four solo albums in one complete opposite here the uh it's harsh but it's directed outward not 
inward and uh, there's a certain jubilance to it all even with the biting qualities and uh, I think the camaraderie shows in the fact that there doesn't seem to have been a lot of competition or ego between them at this point as far as uh, you know who has more songs on there or there's no holding back of your best ideas because you want them to go on your song instead of his. Most of the stories about the songs on this, there's a good bit of collaboration in the story behind the song. Like, yeah, it started as this guy's idea, but then this one pitched in this and this one suggested this and refined this. And it really was a group effort. And some have said perhaps the last time that all four of them were totally invested in being Beatles and making Beatle music together. And I think that jubilance translates into a driving energy that permeates the entire album and results in a fantastic flow. Lennon said just prior to the sessions that they'd considered making each side a continuous flow of music as they would eventually do on side two of Abbey Road and Pink Floyd would do on both sides of the dark side of the moon and many other bands have done that sort of thing since but they ultimately decided not to do that and even though they didn't quite go that far it flows as if they had and it seems like every time you blink you're on to the next song in fact I think the abrupt in a good way starts and stops certain transitions between most of the songs actually have an even greater effect uh it sounds very urgent and driven and confident like this song comes in okay quick say your little bit and then kicked off the stage by the next one and uh it's just sucker punch after sucker punch and it's pretty thematically cohesive in its own way too actually and more so than i had ever thought uh, without crossing the line into being a full-blown concept album like i would probably consider sergeant pepper the the one after this starts with taxman painting an economically bleak picture and then eleanor rigby follows that by painting a socially and spiritually bleak picture you know all the lonely people no one was saved etc and then i'm only sleeping presents one way to escape stay in bed or stay at home bury your head in the sand about the problems either in your own life or in society and potentially drop acid uh or probably uh, have some sex and then love you too implores us to seize the day and make love because life is short and uh fickle so those two are kind of linked and then here, there, and everywhere builds off of the idea from Love You Too that love is the most important thing, but takes a sweeter, more romantic approach with Paul clearly having one particular someone in mind, whereas Love You Too accepts, if not implies, more of a casual, free love type of thing. And then Yellow Submarine, actually written as an honest-to-goodness children's song, 
but certainly builds on the escapism alluded to in I'm Only Sleeping, and certainly has no shortage of psychedelic elements, both sonically and lyrically. And then She Said, She Said depicts the general aggression of the instrumentation and sonic palette playing out in the dissolution of a relationship. And then Good Day Sunshine starts side two in the complete opposite mood to Taxman starting side one with over-the-top, almost unnatural jubilance over the seemingly mundane or things that become mundane to us as adults, which in a way can kind of link it to the childlike whimsy of Yellow Submarine, and anyhow is in stark contrast to the stress of adult life that is expressed in Taxman. Uh, all adults can relate to the stress of finances. And then Andrew Bird can sing pokes at someone who's delusional by way of over-the-top confidence, even narcissism, followed by For No One, which presents a sketch of someone who's delusional by refusing to accept their lover's words at face value when they say the relationship is over. And then Dr. Robert offers a rogue sort of anti-hero who can help you escape all of the, uh, the issues that have been presented thus far. And then I want to tell you, finds George so enamored that he's at a loss for words when he's around his love interest and there's a clear psychedelic double meaning as well. So this could be uh, one of Dr. Robert's happy customers uh, a few hours down the road. And then got to get you into my life in contrast to I want to tell you finds Paul very sure of what to say to his love interest, uh, even though it's actually about pot. Um, and then Tomorrow Never Knows ties it all together, containing lines related to each of the previous 13 songs on some level. The album also has great balance as far as never hearing from the same lead vocalist twice in a row, which I think really keeps it fresh and keeps the momentum going. Side One has two John songs, two Paul songs, two George songs, and a Ringo song, and side two has three John songs, three Paul songs, and a George song, and as I say, you never hear from the same one twice. Side one goes George, Paul, John, George, Paul, Ringo, John, and side two goes Paul, John, Paul, John, George, Paul, John, so really great distribution there. And most impressively, it never sounds like they determined the sequencing based on trying to achieve that. It sounds like they're perfectly sequenced sonically and thematically, and it just happened to play out that way that the uh, it's so evenly distributed between the singers. And lastly, here to wrap up the general thoughts before I give you the interview with Spencer, the following production techniques were either introduced, uh, used, or widely popularized by Revolver. Automatic double tracking, Verispeed, reverse tapes, close audio miking, compression, tonal equalization, 
running the vocal mic through a Leslie revolving twin speaker cabinet, as I said for Lennon on Tomorrow Never Knows, which was a first, just like the reversed tapes. Tape loops, deliberate backmasking, like Harrison's solo on I'm Only Sleeping, which was unprecedented, that he sat down and plotted out how it would sound once the tape was reversed, not like the uh, the Taxman solo being played backwards on Tomorrow Never Knows. They, uh, you know, had the solo sitting there and thought, hey, I wonder what this sounds like backwards. No, with I'm Only Sleeping, he played it in such a way that it probably sounded weird playing it forwards, knowing that it was going to be reversed. Uh, so slightly different spin on the same sort of idea. And then uh, Kevin Ryan and Brian Kehu, who is actually the guy who does the mastering for the Grateful Dead now on all of their archival live releases and remasters of the albums for anniversaries and stuff, and he does a great job. Anyhow, the two of them suggest that ADT backwards recording and closed mic'd drums are three of the nine techniques that were pioneered at the Revolver Sessions. So that's pretty revolutionary. And Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, said, I know for a fact that from the day it came out, Revolver changed the way everyone else made records. Which is the key. It's not like, you know, even though they were aggressively experimenting because they wanted to and wanted to push things as far as they could, you can try a lot of goofy stuff and it just ends up sounding like complexity and obscurity for obscurity's sake. But in this case, they did it because it sounded good and a lot of people have taken inspiration from it or mimicked it or ran with it further since then. And lastly, I should uh, give credit to the variety of genres that are integrated so smoothly on Revolver. You've got basically hard rock before it was quite a thing, uh, psychedelic rock as it was just becoming a thing. They were really on the cutting edge, kind of creating it. The Indian influences, especially on Love You Too, got softer sort of ballad style love song, a sea shanty, some California influence with some Beach Boys kind of elements, some birds kind of sounding stuff, uh, Baroque pop, Motown, soul. And uh, I would say Tomorrow Never Knows is basically them creating their own genre. Um, I would probably say it's the progenitor of acid rock, which is a term that gets used interchangeably sometimes with psychedelic rock, but is usually meant to refer to the heavier sort of cousin of psychedelic rock. Um, you know, a lot of what Hendrix did, your Zeppelins, that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the Doors stuff. I think uh, Tomorrow Never Knows is definitely a precursor to that. And something that contributed to 
such a wide variety of influences was that long layoff that they had because uh, they took advantage of the time by going to a lot of concerts and other cultural events during the time off. And this is while London was swinging London and was sort of the, the cultural capital of the world there for a bit in the mid to late 60s before it shifted towards uh, New York and LA as you move into the 70s. But at this point, London was really the place to be. And actually, uh, just a few days into recording Revolver is when Time Magazine dubbed it the Swinging City, which may have been a little late finally recognizing its uh, cultural dominance. But anyhow, it was a really happening place at the time, and they took full advantage of being the most famous people in the town. And from February to June 66, they saw acts including Stevie Wonder, Roy Orbison, The Love and Spoonful, who Paul said were an inspiration to Got to Get You Into My Life, the Mamas and the Papas, Bob Dylan, Luciano Berrio, and Rabbi Shankar. So they were definitely uh, well-cultured and well, not well-read, but well-listened at this time, and it definitely reflects on Revolver. And I think it's uh, probably their only album that really sounds like Swinging London, very hip and confident and that gives it a, a really unique place in their catalog. So at this point, I think I will turn it over to the interview with Spencer, and you can see what he had to say about Revolver, and then we'll come back after that for placing it within the Beatles catalog and scoring and where I would rank it all time. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to So welcome back to the show, my brother, Spencer Cropper. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Of course. Yeah. Welcome to season three. So we're here today to talk about the Beatles revolver, which turned 55 last week. And, uh, I had it ranked second when I ranked the Beatles albums last year. Uh, where does it rank for you? Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, top, top three doesn't matter it's kind of comes down to preference like to me sergeant pepper revolver uh abbey road the white album rubber soul like those are all albums that like depending on who i'm talking to if they tell me like rubber soul is their best i'm okay with it like i'm not gonna argue i think it's just a matter of like what style you like of them revolver is like my favorite iteration of the beatles okay the combination of of the fact that they were like still such a tight live band because they were still playing live 
Um, and then that combined with their experimentation and obviously moving in the direction of Sgt. Pepper, right? And their songwriting was so good at this point. And really, I mean, the production is so good. Um, like, there's not a bad track on this. And I think it's the best side on any album ever, in my opinion. Side to a revolver is just the best. I think it's unbelievably solid. Um, and at some point when I was listening to this, preparing for the episode, I started toying around with the idea. I was like, did they get the order on this wrong? Cause when you, when you start, like, you know, you've kind of got like some strange choices, like love you too being the fourth song. That's a bit odd to me. Cause it feels like, like, I don't want to say the worst song, but like the least, um sure song you know accessible yeah um right one like you know yellow submarine is you know right in the middle there like you're listening to side one that's at the end i still love that song but it's not you know the same for me as a she said she said or uh, a dr robert like the tracks on the second side of this album are so solid and so well done and the way that they flow is just great. Like particularly um, the beginning of, I want to tell you, uh, I really love how it fades in from the previous track. Like that guitar riff just fades in. Mm-hmm. I think that's brilliant. And got to get you into my life is a total scorcher. Like one of the hardest Beatles songs to sing bar none. It's so hard. Um, but also like, if you're able to sing it, it feels so free. Like McCartney was so good at this point. What is it that makes it one of the more difficult ones? Well, pitch to start with, like all of the notes he's singing are quite high, particularly in the melody where it's like, He's not switching to like, I just switched to my falsetto voice there to hit that top note. Right. Cause it's really hard to do. I can hit it with my full voice. And in the recording that I did for us this week, I do sing it as Paul does, right. He just stays in his full voice. And that's really hard to do to, to sound like light and airy at the top end of your register is very difficult. And Paul is one of the all time greats at it. Um, like he has a lot of songs where, like he'll sing it live a bit differently and now he'll use falsetto. It's not that he couldn't, but he chose not to as a textural choice. So like got to get you into my life is it's kind of like Motown, like soul to me, the backing, but then you've got the Beatle bass on it. Right. Which on revolver is so pronounced the bass sound. Like you listen to ax man, um, you listen to Andrew bird can sing like really all the tracks the whole way through. He's got a really bouncy tone to his playing. Right. And he's doing like weird run-ups where it's like, da, 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 like stuff like that, that you don't really find on, on the earlier Beatles records. Like they're a bit more diatonic. Mm-hmm. So it's like they had reached a, um, a peak combination of creativity, confidence, and like experimentation like they were doing some strange stuff in terms of how they recorded the album um at this point i think this is the first album that jeff emmerich did 
Uh, Jeff Emmerich is a recording engineer that worked with them for most of the latter half of their career. So they, their first engineer, I think his name was Norm Smith because John called him normal Smith. That's how he'd refer to him. He'd be like, Hey, normal, because he was the guy like in the white coat that was like, no, we can't put the treble higher. And they'd be like, okay, well, it's our record. So let's, can we try to write the treble? They're like, just see, just see, right. It can't be that bad. Mm -hmm. And so revolver, I think is the first one where Jeff Emmerich is working on it because the Beatles were like, okay, enough of this guy. He won't let us turn our bass up enough. Like, this is just not the right combination. And then Jeff Emmerich was like a kid that had been like apprenticing with George Martin. And so he was able to do all these like really clever things, right? Um, like recording stuff at half speed, recording it backwards, forwards, chopping it up. Um, and well, chopping it up gets me to Tomorrow Never Knows. Um, that song the creativity that went into that, but also like the precision to use tape loops and stuff like that, where like they had a live track going and then they're sending loops around a room, like literally like all the way around a big studio room right now, everything like that would be in a computer. Like you can't even visualize the, the amount of effort that would have to go into doing that. And when I listen particularly to the vocal, it's such a bizarre sound. I've never heard it on any other record, right? And they talk about how John was like, oh, I want to sound like the Dalai Lama screaming from the hilltops or something. Yeah, in the Himalayas. Right, and they, so they, I think it's a myth that they actually tried it, but it's a story that's always been told that they got him to like swing around on a rope from the ceiling around the microphone. <laughs> Uh, because they wouldn't let them swing the microphone around on a rope because they're like, well, it's going to break. Yeah. But I don't think that actually happened. I think it was some studio trickery by Jeff Hemrick. Um, and so to me, it's just kind of, it's a pinnacle. It's early Beatles, the absolute best. Like to me, it's very distinct. Revolver and Sergeant Pepper are like right in the middle of their career, right? And to me, Revolver is the culmination of the first half. And then Sgt. Pepper is the beginning of the second half, which is just total creative artistic freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, when I was ranking the albums, I ranked Revolver first for guitars. I think the they have a very distinctive uh, timbre to them, first of all, compared to all the other Beatles albums. They're so like bright and snarly and it's uh you know i i think revolver is probably one of the first psychedelic albums but it has a grit to it that not all of them do not all of them do I think right so you said the the sound it's a very particular amp that they used on revolver that's it's like it's exactly the the tone it's just in this amp. It's a Vox uh, UB730 oh, or UL730. UL sorry to cut you off like that. No, uh, yeah, so I think a lot of that that extra snarl compared to other psychedelic stuff is due to that guitar sound. But I didn't rank it number one just for the sound. I also think just playing-wise, it's probably their best guitar album. How do you feel about that as a guitarist? 
Oh yeah, I I'd agree. I I definitely wouldn't argue that. Like the playing on Andrew Bird can sing alone is just mind-boggling. And like it's not that each line on its own is hard to play. Um or like too hard for people to grasp. I mean, it is pretty tough to do. But the thought process that goes into, oh, let's harmonize the guitars, right? They were so good at harmonizing early on with just their voices. Like they weren't thinking the guitar as a harmony with the vocal. Mm -hmm. And then as they got better and better in the studio, they like obviously felt more confident with harmonies, but they also wanted to do new things so that the harmonies could take on a new texture. And so like Revolver, you get this blend where the vocals are super, super tight and thick. But you also have parts where there's no vocals and it's, the guitars are doing the singing. So Andrew Bird can sing perfect example. And I always think about that, the, it, when your bird is broken, will it bring you down? The guitar behind that, right? It's like, right? That's where the bass is going. Like, to me, it really sounds like George, John, and Paul are all at their peak in terms of playing on their respective instruments mm. like McCartney gets better as they go on because he gets more variety in what he can do. He becomes a better play like piano player. Right. But you know, his stuff never gets as aggressive as it is on this record. The way he's playing the bass is so like hoppy and, and punchy and it like, is a big part of the revolver sound like that's always what i'm hearing most when i listen to the record oh yeah like in the bridge and tax man that doo -doo 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 -doo. yeah that line is crazy right yeah it's probably a line that he never played more than once right he was just nailing it right well and then his guitar solo in tax man yeah is just great i was i was watching the mccartney 321 thing on disney plus have you seen i it? haven't yet so it's him and Rick Rubin. I've only watched an episode or two. I, I need to watch more. I really enjoyed what I did watch. Um, but they were playing the tax man solo and he was like, what? So how did that happen? Right. Rick Rubin's asking him, how did you get the solo on the lead guitarist song? And he was like, ah, oh, he was trying it and it wasn't working or something. And then he was like, that would have been something that I played in one or two takes and just, we were like, okay, that works that's crazy like the indian flavor to it is so detailed well i was thinking about that when i was listening through the album this morning it's got to be one of the better solos of all time for that length like it's probably what like 15 20 seconds long the amount that it packs into such a short little gap yeah yeah it might even yeah it's like 13 14 seconds it's really fast yeah and well, and he like, he's doing, he's hitting scale degrees that are like, they, they literally had learned it from George picking up the sitar. They were playing inherently Eastern scales and right. Revolver is the first time, like you've got Norwegian wood on rubber sole, but for the most part, like it kind of sounds like, um, you know, kind of country, country rock kind of iteration of the Beatles. Yeah. Right. Like the guitar lines are very like, dum, da -dum, dum, dum, da -dum, dum. and then you get a revolver and they're, they're doing that, but then they've introduced like these weird scales, like love you too, for example, mm -hmm. 
as a super strange song. Or I want to tell you the vocal harmonies in that are so bizarre, but they're perfect. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're really toying around with major and minor at this point. And uh, I think John is also, you know, writing some of his best, most cynical songs, most honest songs by this point, right? Like Dr. Robert, it kind of baffles me that they got away with releasing that even as an album cut. It's like, it's so blatant the the drug references but also so vague that you really can't say anything yeah but it just sounds like a catchy little the right they're like ah, we're not talking about drugs you just listened to yellow submarine like five songs ago we're obviously not talking about that right yeah well and the basically outing like half of hollywood like yeah all these a-listers go to see this doctor and i love the line you'll pay money just to see yourself with dr robert yeah um, a lot of really great lyrics on this record too, that I think we should, we should go through like their rhyming schemes are really good. I, I hear Dylan influence at this point where they've just got a bit more fresh with what they're doing um, in terms of lyrics, like, well, got to get you into my life, right? I was alone. I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find. <laughs> Right. So he's got an A, B and a C there as like A, B, B, C, which is a bit odd. Mm-hmm. But then he goes to the next part of the verse and it's another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind. Right. So he matches it with the first one. And it's like, oh, that's pretty clever. Like, I wouldn't have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, like if you had to pick a top three songs off this. Um, Tomorrow Never Knows for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Here, There, and Everywhere. And um, I, I might say Tax Man. I, really? I will say the one that... Um, that I've really come around on that used to be my least favorite is Eleanor Rigby. But now I like it finally clicked and I could see the genius in it. And certainly what a leap it was for songwriting, not just by them, but by anybody. Oh, absolutely. Like Eleanor Rigby only has two chords. Truly. It's a song that if you sat down to play it on one instrument, it'd be so boring it's right. Like it's one plus one equals infinity. It's one of those situations where the combination of that melody, that brilliant melody with the orchestration that goes behind it. And they talked about that on that um, docu series as well, where Paul was saying, well, it's kind of an extension of yesterday. Yesterday we had done a quartet and that was an octet, but that those four additional instruments make a really big difference because like George Martin at that point too, was also feeling very confident, right? He had taken this band that a bunch of people had passed up on and they'd established just total and utter dominance of the charts all across the world. Right. And they were gaining a new level of freedom, right? George Martin was somebody was into sound experiments and trying out new things with equipment. And they were working 
in a building where it was like, you can't go over this DB at this frequency. Mm-hmm. Right. So for him too, getting to experiment a bit more, right. Going further and further and getting that kind of job where Paul says, I've got this song and I don't really know what to do with it. Right. And coming in with just a song that's just going to, 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 to father Mackenzie. Right. It's really just that melody. How are you going to accentuate that? And then you listen, like if you listen to those strings isolated, I just think it's the best string arrangement ever in rock music. Off the top of my head, I can't think what the competition would be, but it's definitely up there. Yeah. Like it's, it's really solid. A tax man is a song. um, Like you said earlier, how you had to come around on Eleanor Rigby. There was a time that I wasn't really a big fan of Taxman, and I think that's just because our dad doesn't like it yeah. <laughs> and will turn it off. And then, right, I'll get accustomed to like a song like that coming on and getting shut off. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes on, I'm like, Taxman, rid of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say I like listened to the isolated tracks a little while ago, and it just got me like it gave me newfound appreciation for it, and specifically. And this is just like the best line. I've been enjoying it so much lately is the backing vocals, the, uh, uh, Mr. Wilson, uh, uh, Mr. Heath. Yeah. I love that. Cause they don't, they don't rhyme with anything else. It's just the, the phonetics of it. Wilson Heath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where, because that second phrase is shorter, it propels you into the next part. You're like, what's next? What's next? And just, it, it, it sounds so pleasing. It's, a perfect backing vocal and something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Like I was listening to the middle by Jimmy eats world. Like, you know, the it's going to take some time. Yeah. Right. And I kept noticing, like, I'm like, all these backing vocals are perfect. It's never too much, never too little. It's not boring. It comes in at kind of odd times. Right. And so when I'm listening to revolver, the backing vocals aren't too upfront. Like you don't have a lot of oohs and ahs. You don't have a lot of ear candy going on in the vocals, right? Like a lot of them, it's just the melody. And then, you know, they'll have a, a second part. Um, like I'm trying to think the, uh, keeping alive on the world going by that part. And um, I'm only sleeping is really hard to sing John's part. Mm -hmm. Paul's part I can sing but John's part is weird and it's one of those harmonies where he kind of hangs on the same note for like two changes that McCartney does but then he drops like waiting it's just hard to to pick out who's doing what so when they are singing harmonies it's like it's definitely a sum is greater than the parts thing and they're always perfectly placed on revolver yeah um now speaking of the guitar playing you're a guitarist what um like what what impresses you the most about each of the three of them as guitarists or how would you differentiate them and how does how do those differences show up on revolver um i think well most of the playing should be a you know um, credited to George and Paul. Um, you know, John's parts were always really smart and clever. 
but not necessarily difficult. And he doesn't play lead on any of this stuff, I don't think. Um, which is not to take anything away from him. He the songs he sings are, you know, really, really strong songs. And like that's to me, his role in the band was to be that that superb singer that when he does sing, it's like, wow, this is really something special that we get to hear this. Right. Like I'm only sleeping um, to tie this back to what you were saying about Taxman with the extra stab. Um, I love the sounds in uh, I'm only sleeping when it has the yawning. It's like a sample where it's like, Mm -hmm. and it's just tucked underneath. I think it's only once or twice that you hear it, but it's just brilliant. Right. And like, that bass riff, boom, 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 right? But then how it ends, boom, boom, right? It like it's a variation. You hear it in a different context the last time. Mm-hmm. Um, like those are all little bits where it's just you can't argue with it. It sounds so good. Every single song sounds a hundred percent thought out. Like there's nothing on this that sounds improvised, but it maintains the same level of excitement as if they had played it live, which is really hard to do. Like Sgt. Pepper is a super exciting album, but it doesn't sound like a live band. Mm -mm. And that's Mm -hmm. like, it's not what it's trying to revolver sounds like a live band. Yeah. And actually I find it, uh, it's better suited to cherry picking than Sgt. Pepper. Oh, definitely. Not that it's any less, amazing as a complete statement but it's much more likely that i'll say like oh i feel like listening to she said she said and just listen to it whereas like even if i'm in the mood to just hear fixing a hole it doesn't feel right to just skip to it and leave you know yeah absolutely well and like you know what's funny to me is two number one singles off this are eleanor rigby and yellow submarine yeah and the whole album is better than better than Yellow Submarine and just as good as Eleanor Rigby. Like when I actually look at the list of songs, there's like so many that to me could be number one songs. Well, hey, why don't we speaking of singles, why don't we talk about the the single from the revolver era that uh didn't end up on here, Paperback Writer and Rain. Oh gosh, if you put it well, if you included this on the album, it'd be the best album of all time. Yeah. But then again, you can say that about Sgt. Pepper with the Penny Lane with their respective singles. Of course. But um the that single in particular, um, Paperback Writer is a huge bass sound. That was a huge breakthrough for the Beatles that they got it to sound like that. And people were like, Whoa, how'd you get that bass sound? That's crazy. We've never heard that. Um, and then Rain is same thing. It's like to me, it's like a perfect pop song, but you've taken the experimental like tape loops and stuff like from the I'm only sleeping backwards guitar and from tomorrow never knows. And you've, you've combined it into that, right? There's reverse vocals, but the harmonies are just beautiful. And they also have that Indian flavor of songs like love you too. So like the, the actual single, even though those songs are not related to this album, it's just, they were made, you know, leading into these sessions. Um, they are a perfect representation in two songs of what this album is as a whole. Yeah. It's a great trailer. Right. It's fantastic. And if you like group them together, right? Like if I'm making a playlist, I would tend to include rain with 
um, other songs from Revolver. Like if that fits the vibe of the playlist, I'm going to bring that one in too. Mm -hmm. Paperback Writer is one of those songs that I forget to mention sometimes and you forget, right? Like that's a number one hit that's just like sounds massive coming out of the speakers. Um, yeah. 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 E even playing style with the bass, it's similar to what we were talking about with Taxman. Like Paul has some crazy stuff on Paperback Writer. Yeah. It, it, and it's the exact same sound, like the bass sound, you know, it sounds like those songs could have been a double, double-sided single. Definitely. Um, why don't we talk about the, uh, the cover art? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's do it. I, I think it's, it's cool how it's, uh, in some respects, it's like the opposite of Sergeant Pepper where you have, every color in the rainbow and then some on there. And this one is just like a black and white pencil sketch. Yeah. And yet they're both equally uh, psychedelic, shall we say? Absolutely. Well, and it's cool that it was made by Klaus Vorman, who is a friend of the Beatles. Like they met, when they were in Hamburg, when they were all kids. Um, and then right. Klaus Vorman ends up playing bass on a lot of John's solo stuff. And he plays on all things must pass. And, you know, he was a part of a lot of things, but he wasn't a player at this point, really. Um, and the Beatles hired one of their old friends to make them an album cover. Right. And, I can imagine him coming in with it and the Beatles being absolutely thrilled and all the executives in the room being like, Oh God, how are we going to tell them we're not using this as the cover? Yeah. Cause yeah. It, it really is out there. Uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's the first album of theirs that wasn't just a plain old picture of them. Right. And that's such a distinct part of the Beatles too, is that, you're able to strongly associate their music with uh, a couple particular album covers. Like Abbey road is an image that's just splattered everywhere. And it is a photo of the band, but a perfect one, right? They captured the perfect moment to do it in the perfect environment. Like, yeah, it's like the one shot of Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. And it's not right. This is the pencil sketch. And right. Like you think about magical mysteries who are like, these are all very um, defined images that you're getting with the music and you associate really closely with them. Actually, funny enough, when I was recording earlier, I was shooting some videos as I was recording the cover of got you got to get you into my life. And we have this colored light. Like I, I don't know if you can see right now, but if I switch it, like now it's red, now it's blue, yeah. green. Um, and I've always heard revolver as green even though the, the album cover is black and white, like I'll hear a color with the music, like magical mystery to her sounds like yellow. Okay. Right. Like it's very like psychedelic. Yeah. Um, there's horns all over it. Revolver for some reason has always been green. That's interesting. I, I know for rubber soul, it sounds Brown. Like, yes. like the jackets they're wearing. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like too conditioned from looking at it. I always sort of like picture the black and white when I hear revolver. I think it, it's cool though, with 
um, sort of mirroring the sonic palette, you know, Sergeant Pepper sounds lush and that's what you would expect from that cover. But I find revolver sounds kind of harsh and I, in a good way, cause that fits the songs on it. But I think this cover does a good job of conditioning you to expect that. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, to me, this album, they sound a bit like the stones on this album, like the guitar. No, but like the bass and the, the drums, like, you know, it sounds harder than normal Beatles records. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're saying in a good way, it matches these songs. They're songs that need to be played in that style. Um, but like, it strikes me as a very heavy record. Yeah. Like even the soft song, I'm only sleeping in here, there and everywhere. Those are like deeply emotional uh, touching songs that at the end, you know, you just, you feel something and you like, you feel like that was a journey you went on. Mm -hmm. And the other songs, like the sound is, it's like an airplane. Yeah. Like it just sounds like yet, you know? Well, yeah. Between revolver and the comp the uh the single that like we were saying i think if i was trying to convince someone of how good they were as a rock band like just look these guys were really good on their instruments and could play heavy stuff it's what i would use as the example apart from a, you know a few isolated songs on the white album and abbey road yeah i would agree with that um a hard day's night also fits that for me um to me like the peak of playing like early beatles is a hard day's night that's such a great album and they like they sound like a rock band on a hard day's night uh, then this is like totally drastically different music like there's so much progression that went on between 64 and 66 just with how music was being made with the fact you had artists like cream now and you had like who like people that were sounding really, really big. So even a pop band like the Beatles, right? Like they were winning awards, like best vocal group and best, this, best, that they were like, we still want to sound as heavy as those guys. Oh, they sounded like that record satisfaction sounded like that. How do we do that? Mm -hmm. Right. How do we, how do we do it better? And revolver to me is just like blows everything anyone else had done out of the water. Like previous to re previously released before Revolver, this comes out and immediately it's like, this is the greatest record ever, in my opinion. And still this one to me, it's not Pet Sounds. And like, I, I typically have Sgt. Pepper, Pet Sounds, Revolver, mm -hmm. like most people or publications do. Like, I don't argue with that. I think that's really true. Um, but I also feel like Revolver, is really the second best of those three records. It's the novelty of the fact that like the two Beatles records sounds like the Beatles. Whereas, you know, pet sounds is such a distinct record. Like I've never heard another that sounds like it. Mm -hmm. It's very mm -hmm. much that sunshine pop, you know, California sound. So it's very different than revolver. And because of that, like, I still believe it warrants to be in the top three. Mm -hmm. But because it's like the Beatles versus Brian Wilson, like gets put in at two. And sometimes I listen and I think, nah, I think Revolver's better. 
Like it's, it's really good playing. The thing is, is pet sounds. It's a great record and it's a testament to Brian Wilson and what he was doing at the time. But the playing is not the beach boys, right? Mm -hmm. No, they're not instruments. And whereas like revolver, I'm like, this is still just four guys in a studio. Right. Like this is such an achievement that they sounded this big and it's just a rock band playing in a room. Yeah, and as a as a drummer, like what Hal Blaine did on Pet Sounds is fantastic as far as a an achievement of studio percussion, but I don't usually listen to it and think, Oh, I wanna run downstairs and try to play I just wasn't made for these times or something, right? Whereas right. I listen to Revolver and like, oh, I should try this. This sounds fun. Funny that you say that because I don't drum a lot. It's not something, I mean, once a week maybe. It's just like something that I enjoy doing when I when I get the, you know, feeling to do so. And so Revolver is always the album I come to, always, because I know I can turn on the second half and the whole thing is just like, go, go, go. Like, mm fun difficult drumming the fills are all perfect right like um i want to tell you right like the way the snare comes in yeah it's just very like i mean it's very basic rhythm Mm -hmm. and it just it just spells out like this is tension we're about to relieve like but there's always something like that going on on this record. There's literally between every line, there's something like that mm-hmm. that's keeping you interested and intrigued. Yeah. Well, and then as far as the single rain is probably my favorite Ringo song. Rain and tomorrow never knows are two of the best drum performances ever. Like tomorrow never knows is just, he's just holding the groove, but to do that for minutes on end like you can attest to how difficult that is physically. Yeah. you Just that 30 second note. Well, you start to, to question yourself. Like, am I still in time? Cause you've been doing the same thing for, it's like, if you, uh, you take any random word and if you say it like 50 times in a row, you start to be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, am I just making sounds or is this actually a word? Like if you say, sorry, like a hundred times in a row, you're like, what am I even saying? Yeah. Yeah, or like in your head, you'll question how it's spelled. <laughs> right. So it's like that, like you playing yeah, yeah. as like a simple part that's yeah. like, okay, simple, but not like a straight 4-4 four, four groove that any drummer can do in their sleep. It's like, oh, crap, I, I'm going to screw it up. I just know it. I've been doing it for too long now. Like the the mistake is coming or like I must have drifted off time by now. Well, speaking of drifting off time and uh, stuff that's not like standard four four kind of beat, she said she said is so underrated in my opinion. The the thinking that went into the harmony of it, like to me, it's one of the perfect John songs. Um, you know the chords he's using. There's key changes going on, um, and there's a time change where it changes to five, and Ringo's just playing like one, two, three, four, five on the kick and snare, right? Which is something that he did throughout their career, right? He'll go into a section where he basically plays it in two. Yeah. Um, and he, so they throw it in there and they're like, lots of people like musicians could listen to this and not notice 
the, the time it's just it sounds wonky but that's something the beatles did that's one of the biggest rules they broke most people like songs just they fit a certain structure and rhythm and you know it's eight or 16 or 12 maybe but you don't do 11 bar verses mm-hmm. right and the beatles came along they're like well we wrote it that way so let's do it that way and she said she said is a precursor in my opinion to good morning good morning i could see that because good morning good morning is such a weird drum track have you tried to play it no but i know it flips between uh four four and whatever six eight it is it's like four four there's some five four there's some seven four like but they weren't thinking of it like that they're just dropping a beat here adding a beat here because he wrote the line a bit differently right and she said she said that's kind of how it is where it's just an added beat but the emphasis that that bring beat brings is uh you know perfect for the song and necessary without it I don't know if it would be such a, a great track, you know, but it's the, the fact that they were being so inventive with how they were putting songs together and right. Like it's always a balance of familiar and new. You always need something new in the song. You also always need something familiar so that we don't feel like too far gone. Right. Like, like we can't remember what the original idea was. And I was studying this yesterday. Um, a guy named Max Martin. So Max Martin is a songwriter. Most people don't know him. Everybody knows his songs though. Um, he's worked he's with Taylor third, Swift. Yeah. He's third all time. Uh, number one billboard singles behind only Lennon and McCartney. Wow. Um, and so he's written, but like y- you say that and you're like, Oh, he's worked with Taylor Swift. Yeah. He did blank space and, uh, some other stuff. Yeah. I can't think at all. Um, but he wrote like, uh, I want it that way, uh, which everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Right? I want it that way. He wrote that. He wrote, oops, I did it again by Britney Spears. Everything Katy Perry does, all of her hits, California Girls, uh, I don't know about Hot and Cold, but Roar, like yeah. all of them. He wrote Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. So he's still the absolute best in the game. He wrote the best song of last year. Yeah. Like that's so catchy. He wrote like, uh, there's a song dynamite by Tyle Cruz, which I remember from being like nine <laughs> on the way to five <laughs> seasons. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, um, that was him, all kinds of stuff. Uh, he did like, I can't feel my face with the weekend. Uh, he worked with Adele at some point, but he's just a really great writer. And he was talking about mathematical, approach to music now his whole approach is let's keep it simple the listeners don't he at some point discovered like the listeners aren't grasping all these different melodic ideas and he tries to have only three or four melodies in the whole song but he'll recycle it so like the guitar part in the verse will be playing the melody from the chorus but you're not hearing that because it's like they think of it in an interesting way where it doesn't scream repetition right Right. And the Beatles were really good at that instinctively. The Beatles and ABBA are who Max Martin studied the most. Um, I mean, other people like Prince, lots of people, but you know, he, he's quoted as saying like, most of the stuff I learned is from them. Like he was like, he always cites, um, I am the walrus. Cause he's like, that song is a brilliant melody. The lyrics are garbage, but because the melody is or not garbage, but you know, yeah gibberish yeah 
they have no real meaning, but when connected with the song, they're brilliant. Yeah. Right. But he was like, it's all about phonetics. It's about the way the words sound. It's not necessarily that the words make sense. And he has some songs where there's like really blatant grammatical errors, but he's like, I know it was, I know it's technically wrong, but it wasn't wrong for the song. It's, it's part of why it was a hit. Yeah. Um, And so like when I listen to Rover, I think the Beatles are really just good at, at uh, tension and release at this point and introducing uh, enough new ideas that it's like, wow, this is really experimental, but not so many that you get distracted by it. Yeah. It's not like revolution nine level. It's still like within a catchy song. Right. And they're still, but they're still mainly playing as a live band. And I think that's the big difference between Sgt. Pepper and Revolver. Well, and actually I'll go further than that. Sgt. Pepper and Pet Sounds are more comparable because those records are similar in terms of the guys writing the songs played some of the instruments, they got orchestration around it, right? Like the Beatles obviously playing more instruments than the guys in the Beach Boys actually did, but you can't understate Brian's involvement as the producer. So to me, those are like equal in terms of those are very studio records. They're not, they're not meant to be played live. They weren't played live at the time. Right. Whereas revolver, not that these would be easy to pull off live because they'd be really hard to play. Yeah. But to me, it sounds like a perfect live. Like if, if I went to a show and a band played like that, I'd be like, Whoa, Mm -hmm. right. Like the best show ever. It's just, the perfect amount of energy going into 14 songs, right? They really mastered that 35 minutes of greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, Speaking of lyrics with the Max Martin thing and uh, speaking of, she said, she said, I think Revolver is one of their more easily quotable albums. As far as you can take little lines in isolation, it's like, uh, an entire high school class could like take their yearbook quote from revolver. Like Shane's brother, Josh used uh when I was a boy, everything was right in his yearbook quote. I remember. And uh, there's like stuff all like, I mean, you, you could use, listen to the color of your dreams or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Not that that's an original Beatles line, but yeah, or declare. That's where people know it from. Uh, but I don't, right, like there's a lot of stuff like um, your day breaks, your mind aches, you find the no, 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 no. No one is is or for no one is such a great song. Oh yeah, one of the more underrated for sure amongst non-Beatle fans. Yes, yeah, it's it's not extremely well known and well actually what i'm looking at right now is the uh streaming numbers on like well this is just on spotify um but i always look at this because i find it interesting like if you look at the historical like oh this is the song that was the hit this is you know the one that did the most sales this is what earned the group the most money right like obviously the singles are going to do a lot of that back then but and there's not really a great way of measuring like, Oh, were people skipping love you too on the record, Mm -hmm. but you can see that on Spotify and that's the brilliance. Like, um, so the, the most streamed song on the whole album is Eleanor Rigby, which does not surprise me, but 
it, it would not be your first choice. You're growing on it, but you're still not going to lead with that, right? Right. And uh, Yellow Submarine, 108,000. Now, I think, or 108 million, sorry. I think that's due to the fact that those are both on the one compilation. Right. And it, like a lot of kids like Yellow Submarine. And... But um, in terms of the album cuts, um, for no one is actually the third it's the highest behind the two singles really that is crazy ah for no one has almost 43 million and uh then there's a whole bunch that are at 38 39 which is tax man i'm only sleeping here there and everywhere um and then there's like oh got to get you into my life is 38 then there's like a group of them that have about 30 million which is Andrew Bird can sing Good Day Sunshine. Um, and then there's like Love You Too has 14 million. She said, she said only has 18 million. So like that to me, that's an underrated gem. You've got people skipping She Said, She Said. Yeah. When I hear that riff come in, I'm just like oh, spaced out for two minutes. Like such a great song. Um, and really experimental. Like she said, I know what it's like to be dead. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's where the cynicism of John Lennon was so uh, apparent. Right. Well, and it also shows the, the influence of their, their recent uh, encounters with LSD at that point, she could be saying like, Oh yeah, I've had a trip where I had ego death or. Yeah. Well, and that made me think of uh, right. Like, there's some songs on here that Paul has referred to as like kind of ode to drug songs. Mm-hmm. Got to get mm-hmm. you into my life being one of them. Right. Um, to me, once he says that, like a good day, sunshine always made me think of that. Yeah. Um, Cause that's a, a slang for um, tabs or was at some point. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Um, you know, like it's songs like that where it's a double entendre where like he's kind of singing about things that aren't commercially viable, but he just passes them off as love songs. And when I was learning the good day, sunshine chords, it's like good day, sunshine, but it, it's modulating before you even get to the first verse. And it's like, good day, sunshine. I need to laugh. And when the sun is out, it he changes right there. Yeah. And that reminds me a lot of Penny Lane. There's a there's a lot of sort of hidden trickery that uh and even how almost the whole album has sort of a uh a pulsing propulsion to it. Um and, and I've said before, I think china cat sunflower by the grateful dead is the song that like most perfectly encapsulates lsd but i now realize it's it most perfectly encapsulates encapsulates the positive side and then tomorrow never knows is like the perfect encapsulation of when things can go a little squirrely it's like you should have to listen to those two songs as a trailer first it's like you could get this or you could get this It's funny to think of it that way. Um, 
to me, Revolver is a dark record. Like when I mentioned that it's green, I mean like a very dark green, but like an outdoorsy kind of like London, you know, but like outside the city, rainy, you know, overcast, walking through trees. Like that to me is kind of the feeling that I just get off the top of my head. But almost like it's more like an alleyway with some vines and like, like there's puddles and it's cold and it's wet. Right. It's like kind of a grimy, this is very like a Liverpool record to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like, it's not, it's like that kind of port town rock band kind of thing. Well, especially with having a, a sea shanty style thing with yellow sub. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and that song is, um, it, it goes back to that mathematical, songwriting kind of thing where like it's just brilliant um and i'm you know hearing the band having fun like they did on that recording is priceless to me you know like those those um you know drop the anchor lines and uh you know stuff where you're just picturing john yeah having all in the studio uh you know acting like he's shouting over the intercom yeah um right and i love that part where he goes yeah hey on it right Mm -hmm. where it's just like uh right like there's the call and response that they introduce in like one of the later verses um there's a reason that was a number one song like it's like the best kids song ever written (laughs) it's like so clever to me oh i know i found that interesting you said uh you think side two of this would be your favorite album side of all time I've always uh, thought that for me, it might be between uh, side one of Sticky Fingers and side two of Let It Bleed. Ah. Yeah, and those are the ones we talked about if you combine the two. Yeah, or or side one of Zeppelin Four. Yeah, I could see that. That's I pictured that more, your route. Um. You know, I I think that's really what makes the Beatles special is that, like, to me, there's so many sides of their music that could be argued as like the best, as like perfect, as like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, but I don't I don't care what your taste is, you, like nobody can listen to this and be like, ah, that's wrong though, that song's really not that good. Even the songs on Beatles records that you know like in 10 bands will start to hate like Maxwell silver hammer, mm-hmm. for example, that's a song. I used to like that song a lot. I thought it was really clever. I, I, I loved how he said pataphysical science. I thought that was just like, wow, that's a great lyric. Yeah. Um, and then for a while I hated it, like skip, skip, skip. And it was the only track on Abbey road that I was like, why did you have to put that on there? If you just kept it off, not even for any other song, you just kept off, it's a perfect album. Mm-hmm. And then, so I was watching the McCartney thing and I ended up listening to it because they were talking about um, that it's Mal Evans banging an actual anvil, like playing with a live band, like bang, bang as they go along, right. which is not right. something that would happen today. You would either record the anvil first and have it, you know, all copy and pasted throughout the song. Yeah as you're recording or you would do it the other way and record everything and then throw that in. Yeah. Right. But it would be sampled. You're probably not even getting your own anvil. You're probably signing up for a subscription and downloading a sound for it. Yeah. 
back then they brought a real anvil into the studio and had him banging on it. And they're like, so every once in a while you'd get one that wasn't good yeah. and then have to, you know, go back. And then they were breaking down the Moog parts in Maxwell silver hammer. And a, a Moog is a synthesizer. Um, the inventor of it being Bob Moog. Um, and he, um, got one to George, like George found out about it and, and bought one and synthesizers now are like a little keyboard. Like they, they range in size, but you can get some really tiny synths. Like there's a market just for tiny synths. Then you got like normal size ones. There's some that are a bit bigger, but back then it took up a whole room. It was like floor to ceiling, like patch bays and wires and, um, so at Abbey road, they took George's Moog and, and put it in some utility room for the recording of the album. And so it was kind of this big event where they like brought everyone down to see it. They're like, this is a synthesizer. Yeah. And, and there's pictures of all the Beatles trying it out. And so you can hear it on their own individual songs and see what they do with it differently. So like John, for example, used it to get the white noise effect onto, I want you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise he wouldn't have, he would have had to go get it somewhere else, but he made it with a synthesizer. And then Maxwell silver hammer has all kinds of weird, like like really big runs and arpeggios that couldn't be played. Certainly not in real time, but probably weren't played by anybody. And I think there are synthesizers where it's like, it's a sequence and it's, it knows how to build the chord so it can do it quickly enough for you. But you know, that's a record that, when I listen to Abbey Road versus Revolver, that's the big difference is I'm like, well, there was a lot of technological advancements between those, you know, you know, 66 and 69, right. That's a big three years. Yeah. Right. And like, like we, we take this for granted that back then, like the Beatles, the biggest band in the world would go on tour with shoddy equipment because there wasn't perfect information on you need to have this, 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 and this, right. And McCartney is one of those big people that, right. He took it from like kind of this fend for yourself. Like your equipment might just suck to like, you know, bands go out with a whole bus of equipment and we know it's going to sound perfect. We've tested it. We know it's going to work, right. That's how, how modern big bands do it. But the Beatles back then, didn't have great equipment going live. So like it was questionable if you could even get a good sound sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you listen to revolver, there's a lot of this stuff that like, that's just a great sound, but it's them playing it. It's a mic just next to an amp. It's not like anything special, right? Like the driving sounds of this, the experimental part of it is how they played it. Mm-hmm. Not what it was being played on versus stuff later when synthesizers come into the fold, right? You start experimenting with that and, you know, you can make anything sound kind of trippy, but at the time of revolver, it was quite difficult to do that on record to make it sound a certain way. And they went for a spooky vibe with tomorrow never knows. And right. Like love you too is a really interesting song in terms of the sitar, but like it's a distorted song versus like Norwegian wood uses the sitar as like an acoustic instrument. Mm-hmm. Right. But hearing it in an electric setting is kind of like paint it blackish to me with love you too. Those two songs could go together for me. Right. Uh, you asked me what my top three of the album would be. What's yours? 
Uh, oh. I have like 10 favorites off this. Uh, got to get you into my life. Andrew Bird can sing. And maybe Good Day Sunshine. I really love the Paul songs on this record. To me, he's really come out of his shell by this point and like taken control of like the Beatles sound like him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like his songs on this album are really hard to sing. They're songs that only he could sing like that. Like he was able to sing those kind of songs like pretty freely. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't straining to hit those notes too much he was able to do it like very precisely. Like I spent all day today trying to replicate one of his vocals, piecing it together. Mm-hmm. And it still, it doesn't sound relaxed like he does. Um, so like those songs I picked Andrew bird can sing, I think is such a clever lyric too. And I think that gets overlooked because the guitars sound so good on the record. The actual song is really great too, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's, that is the perfect two minutes of pop music. Right, Andrew Bird can sing is only a minute fifty nine. I think, yeah, it's exactly two minutes. Mm-hmm. What it's listed as, and it's really like a minute fifty eight. Yeah, but you think about the pattern of that song, right? So it starts with the riff, and then goes into a verse. Tell me that you got everything you want, right? And then it's got the when your bird is broken part. It's got the guitar solo in there. Goes back to the when your bird is broken back to the verse, another solo on the way out. Like that's a lot of music to fit into two minutes. Mm -hmm. People didn't think to do that. Like a two minute song is like often thought of as just a bit of a shorter version of what a three minute song is. Well, yeah. For me, I, I always have a mental hurdle. If I see it's less than two, I'm like, Oh, that's a semi song. Like, uh, um, something like, uh, uh, what the heck? Um, you know, dark side of the moon at the beginning, how it's like, uh, before it launches into breathe, you've got like a, it's like that. 50, d- d- yeah. Like d- 50 d- seconds d- of like, yeah. To me, any, yeah. To anything less than two minutes, I'm thinking like that. Or, uh, you know, I'm someone who sees like, what this dark stars less than 30 minutes. What the heck, man? <laughs> yeah. And that's so funny because like, to me, like something that, like you have to be really good to be able to do that, to write a song like that, a two minute song that feels complete, but packs so much in like, that's just not like, that takes a lot of experience to learn how to do that. And I, I know I have one song that's like close to two minutes and I feel really proud of how much gets fit into the time, but it still doesn't fit as much as this. And it's longer. And it's not just because of the tempo. Andrew bird can sing is fast. Mm -hmm. But like, typically that's the difference between a two and a half minute song and a three minute song is what's the tempo. If it's a bit slower, it's probably going to hit three minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, whereas this is super fast, but it compensates with that by having so many song sections and it's still only two minutes. It's just crazy to me. The, the actual, like, you know, bang for your buck for lack of a better expression. 
you've got two minutes of music. You only get two minutes of music for the rest of your life. And you can't like, you can't pick and choose. It's got to be one piece of music, two minutes from it. This is the perfect example of a complete song that has a lot to offer you that you're not picking just like half of a song. This is the full thing, two minutes, perfect. And it just gets me amped every time I hear it. I just get excited. I'll go with listening to Polythene Pam twice. (laughs) (laughs) Discovered at some point that he had the original idea for Polythene Pam in like 64 or something. Really? He'd been kicking around that idea for like five years. Well, I think it's it's too bad they didn't uh, ever like work it into a, a full song that's at least like around two minutes because it is like one of my favorites but i can't you can't rank it too high when it's like 50 seconds long or a minute 17 or whatever it is see and that's where it's a dilemma where in terms of if you're picking your favorite beatles song i feel like the medley deserves to be grouped together because that's the brilliance of it is that it's really this great big long 15 minute opera mm-hmm. right type of thing but each of the different ideas are like a separate song idea right and they had done that previously with like within a song there would be a couple different song ideas right baby you're a rich man as an example where they had two separate ideas they threw them together boom yeah. There's a song or a day. You use one idea as the bridge. You use one as the main, whatever it works. Right. But the technical and musical achievement of doing like 17 minutes of that, where like every minute or two it's changing is really far out there. Mm-hmm. So like, to me, I'm like the 52nd song really shouldn't be, you know, dropped down just because it's short. It's part of a medley. Like to me, that's got to be top five Beatles songs. If if you're including the medley as one song. Yeah. There's a case for that. So much to offer from it. It's brilliant. Yeah. I, it's probably good. Polythene Pam didn't come out until 69. I, I don't know if it would have had the same effect with their 64 sound, but the, uh, it benefited from that late sixties heaviness. Yeah, one. Well, it sounds like kind of like David Bowie to me. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I I hear a lot of uh, of Zeppelin influence on on Abbey Road. Uh, it kind of sounds like Communication Breakdown to me. Yep, absolutely. I hear that. All right. Well, uh, I think we have probably covered if not everything about as much as we need to today. So uh, thank you as always for coming on Spence. And I believe we'll be hearing from you again next week for the 50th anniversary of who's next. Yep. Who are you? (laughs) Your big brother and your doctor. (laughs) If you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) thanks for having me back on i'm uh super stoked for the next one and uh i hope you all enjoy the cover of got to get you into my life throughout this episode all right thanks we'll talk to you next week buddy
right, so I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Spencer, and I hope you enjoyed the stereo panning. I figured out how to get a separate file for each of our uh, tracks from the Zoom call, which is how we do our interviews right now. And uh, hopefully that'll improve the listening experience. Anyhow, now to uh, move towards wrapping it up here and uh, just give a few thoughts about where I think Revolver ranks within the Beatles catalog. I think it's a clear-cut second to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and closer to Pepper than it is to the rest of the catalog. I think those are fairly obviously the top two, no disrespect to the others, more of a testament to how crazy good these two are. Revolver does have some advantages over Sgt. Pepper, though. Uh, It's better for cherry-picking, more of an actual rock album in that almost all the songs are still centered around the traditional guitar, bass, drums format. And you could argue that it's the peak of their individual and collective playing in those respects. Uh, It's a pretty good case for it being Ringo's best drumming, Paul's best bass playing, and... The uh, I think it's their best guitar album as far as the actual playing and just the sound. Um, and all that makes sense in a way since it was recorded at the culmination of their career as a live band. I think it has superior innovation to the albums before it and superior cohesion and focus to those after it apart from Sgt. Pepper. Abbey Road's pretty cohesive, but uh, not quite in the same league, I don't think, from a top-to-bottom consistency perspective. And Revolver is arguably the only Beatles album that was made when the balance of power, if you will, between John and Paul was essentially equal which perhaps contributed to it being the apex of their group morale. Uh, John dominated prior to Revolver, and Paul kind of dominated after. So Revolver is a cool crossroads in their catalog in that respect. And it's also a crossroads like that as far as their sound. Generally speaking, I think uh, I sort of view it both as the the final chapter of the early Beatles period and the culmination of that sort of format and approach and the first chapter and the start of their psychedelic period and the quote-unquote latter-day Beatles thing. I sort of view Revolver as being smack dab in the middle. And as I said earlier, it's pretty unique in their catalog being the only one that really sounds like swinging London and that really hip, urban, uh, mid-60s sort of thing. Sgt. Pepper, of course, is still very hip and mid-60s sounding, but takes place really in a fantasy land, uh, whereas Revolver feels a bit more grounded to reality, I would say. So 
So as far as scoring Revolver and placing it within uh, music's canon as a whole, the song score per song, my original Golden Goose metric that I'm not quite as confident in as I was a year or so ago when I devised it, uh, where I sort each of the songs into a a bin uh, ranging from minus three to plus five. I've never had to go all the way down to minus five yet. Um, and then add that up and divide by the number of songs on the album to arrive at a rating out of five. That uh, I would have told you coming into this episode would have come, come out somewhere around a 4.7, 4.8, um, up to a 4.9. The more I think about it though, as I go through all of the songs in detail, I really can't think of what I would change. And we talked about the, uh, the paperback writer rain single, which was recorded at these sessions and how, if those two songs had been on it, in theory, that would make the album even better and even closer to surpassing Sgt. Pepper. Uh, but I just can't think of where I would put them. And it's not like they would be incoherent uh, sonically. They would fit right in. Uh, I just can't think of how I would want to interrupt the really perfect flow that's already here. So the fact that I can't think of what I would change and can't think of how I would fit in two songs like that paperback writer and rain, which I really love onto an album that has space on the vinyl. It's only 35 minutes long, so they easily could have fit them in. But, uh, the fact that I can't think of how I would do it sort of leaves me with, uh, no choice, but to, uh, you know, twist my arm. Uh, I think I have to give it a five out of five actually. Um, no, I don't think that's watering down my perfect scores at all to welcome revolver to the club. Uh, I think it's a top 10 album of all time for sure. Uh, saying that is probably seen as a sacrilegious underrating that I'm not saying, Oh, it's top five for sure. But, uh, Cool Your Jets, top 10 all time for sure, probably higher. Uh, it finishes in the top three in practically every list, often first. Now there's a strong contingent that now put it ahead of Sgt. Pepper. There's this thing called acclaimed music, which sort of aggregates all lists and rankings of albums and songs and comes out with a composite score and according to them revolver is the third most celebrated album of all time which falls right in with what i see in most polls that i've read rolling stone ranked it third in the first two editions of their 500 greatest albums of all time list but it fell to 11th in the 2020 revision the lowest that i've ever seen it finish uh, even though 11th all time is hardly a slight really, if you think about it, but I think it's better than that. And I have, uh, a lot of qualms with the 2020 revision 
over and above my usual issues with Rolling Stone, they were uh, quite um, illogically harsh on Led Zeppelin back in the day, among many other issues. It's not just the leadhead in me getting bent out of shape, but the 2020 revision seemed uh, unduly motivated by uh, trying to be more woke and highly prioritizing albums that were more uh, political or socially conscious, which that's fine. I We talked about what's going on in May for its 50th anniversary, which is their new number one. I don't have anything against albums like that, but I don't think it should be seen as a prerequisite that you're making some grand commentary on society. But critics always tend to favor what I would call highbrow stuff like that, not just in music. Um, it happens in movies too. If you look at the the Oscar nominees most years, they're not even close to the top box office movies of that year. And I would say the truth is usually somewhere in the middle as usual. Um, the, the Oscar nominees are a little too highbrow for me. I'm not a, a cinema connoisseur the way I am with music. Um, and sure, some of the block box, block box office blockbusters, um, are a little too dumb, fast and furious. Uh, but the, what I would consider the best movies are somewhere between the two on that spectrum. And I think the same is true in music. A lot of the times, uh, I think the stuff that the critics really praise is maybe a little too pretentious or trying too hard to, uh, be a, uh, um, a ready-made thing to talk about in a cultural studies class and the stuff that is topping the top 40 charts is sometimes a little too mindless pop and for my money the Goldilocks stuff is somewhere between the two. Anyhow I told you I was done with the soapbox earlier but there you have it uh, a bonus rant for you today. Anyhow beyond how great Revolver sounds and how awesome it is just listening to it in a silo, you have to consider how massively influential it was and continues to be. Uh, as I said, it pioneered nine recording techniques that have since become uh, very widely used. And I would say I I tried to look this up and couldn't really find a straight answer. If it's not the very first psychedelic rock album, it's very close and was the first of that magnitude by a band of that stature, which makes it a huge deal because that means it basically ushered in what would be the predominant subgenre for the ensuing five years or so, uh, covering what I consider to be the golden age of music, the late 60s, early 70s. And I think it's worth noting that it's more aggressive and has more of an edge to it than pretty well all other more or less pure psychedelic rock albums. Uh, I mean, sure, you have stuff like 
Led Zeppelin one that has, well, the first two that have psychedelic elements, but that's not the only thing going on. And yeah, they're heavier and more aggressive, but as far as fairly pure psychedelic albums, um, Sgt. Pepper, the Stones, their Satanic Majesty's Request, uh, Jefferson Airplane, Surrealistic Pillow, um, Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, maybe Hendrix's albums, I guess they would be pretty heavy too. But still, I don't think they have the same snarl and uh, bite. Um, what else? Well, Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles. Um, the new songs they made for Yellow Submarine would come close to matching the aggression, but that's not a full album. Um, the first three Grateful Dead albums, the self-titled Anthem of the Sun and Oxo Moxoa, um, and there are others I'm forgetting, but as far as fairly pure psychedelic rock albums, I think Revolver is the harshest, most aggressive, uh, ballsiest of the bunch, which is really cool. And actually contributed to the delay in this episode, I think. Um, it's kind of, the harshness almost makes it a bit of an intimidating listen, especially when you, you're going to have to really focus and make detailed notes about it like I have to. Um, it's one that when you finish, you kind of need to, like, ooh, I need to go uh, have a glass of water and sit down and uh, chill out and uh, do something soothing, probably. So a bit more difficult to just listen to it on repeat, which is the best way to to plow through making the outline quickly and was easy to do when I was talking about uh, Working Man's Dead and certainly American Beauty last fall, not saying they're better than Revolver, probably not quite as good, but uh, American Beauty especially, it just sounds like you're floating on a pillow. So I just put it repeat, repeat, repeat and was a great fit for November too. Um, Revolver, I uh, didn't quite have the the strength to just listen to it over and over again. Uh, it's a it's a demanding listen, rewarding, but uh, it it uh, it's a full on sonic attack. So as far as where I would put it on my personal top list of albums. Um, I've now handed out seven perfect scores, I think. Is that right? I've done Sgt. Pepper, Led Zeppelin 4, Pet Sounds, Sticky Fingers, Blonde on Blonde. That's five. Oh, okay. So this is the sixth five out of five that I've awarded. Um, that sounds about right for variety's sake. I guess I will put it at the bottom of that group, even if to the extent that you can be objective, it should be above a few of them. I'll, I'll say sixth or seventh on my list. Um, the ones that would be in that, that next grouping for the, the bottom half of my top five would be American Beauty, uh, Physical Graffiti, Exile on Main Street, and or Let It Bleed, probably. 
maybe another Beatles or another Zeppelin. Uh, I'm quite high on crime of the century and even in the quietest moments by super tramp, but they're probably outside the top 10. Um, yeah. Anyhow, I would say revolvers probably in the five to seven range for me, depending on the day. So we've reached the end, ended up being longer than I expected. Uh, sorry about that. And again, sorry for the wait getting this episode out, but thank you for your patience and thank you for listening. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you liked what you heard. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you so much for the continued support. I encourage you all to follow the show, as I said at the outset, on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at rocktalk.dr.cropper, and those are the two platforms I'm probably the most active on. Then Twitter, which I'm trying to get more active on, at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, and Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. The episodes aren't on YouTube yet. There's nothing there, but I one of these days when I have extra time, I'm going to try to get them all up there. And you can also email me, rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. Of course, feel free to reach out on any of those platforms if you have any questions, feedback for me, topics you'd like me to cover which you have priority sequence for if you subscribe to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the new premium spinoff of the show, which uh, is exclusive to Apple Podcasts. My apologies to those of you who don't have an Apple device. But if you subscribe to that for $4.99 American per month, you receive access to a minimum of two bonus episodes per month, you get priority sequence for topic requests and you receive 10% off all merchandise, which for the moment is t-shirts and hoodies, both available in the whiteboard design, which is the black writing on white, like the logo you see wherever you're listening or the chalkboard design, the white writing on black, which is the logo for Dr. Cropper's office hour. And the t-shirts are $40 Canadian or two for 70. And the hoodies are $80 Canadian or two for 150. And you can reach out on any of the previously mentioned platforms if you are interested in those. Um, probably easiest if you email to, uh, for my bookkeeping ease, but don't worry about it. Uh, find me however you want and, uh, we'll get it done. Lastly, uh, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use, those are very helpful to me uh, as they determine the uh, the indexing with the search engines and everything. Uh, and good reviews help the show to be heard by more people. So anyhow, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. Look forward to seeing you next time, which will be talking about the Who's Who's Next album for its 50th anniversary, which was this week. 
uh, and Spence, my brother, will join us again for that. And also my copy of Dave's Picks Volume 39, the latest Grateful Dead archival release, which is the April 26th, 83 show at the Spectrum in Philly. Uh, my copy of that arrived, so I, I've listened to it once and I'll go through it again making notes this time and uh, get a review episode of that up for you next week. And if you choose to subscribe to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour, the premium show, the next episode of that will be sharing my thoughts about the Dead's Summer 72 shows, which I am listening to all of for the first time this year. I've always listened to Veneta, but hadn't really heard the others. So that'll be coming the week after um, next but while we're still in August, so that I am in compliance with my contract with Apple. Okay, so I will see you next week. Have an awesome weekend. Class dismissed.